Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cash back. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This episode brought to you by the following patrons. Alexander, Natasha, Sophia, Goradica, Vance, Cody, Boezy, Jeremy, Brother, Ali, Nathan, Jennifer with a PH, Mr. Ragebomb, Libby, Wes, Dreskel, Aaron, Danielle, Kristen, Tia, Lauren, Jonathan, Kate, Alex, Isaac, and Karun. And all the patrons want you to know you're loved, you're listened to, and you're a valuable member of this awesome Horror Virgin community. And if you want to hang out with us, please do so in the Facebook group or Discord servers where we hang out daily. Hereditary hot takes. If you drive with your older brother and you sit in the backseat and not shotgun... That's what happens to you. <laughs> if you're going to treat your brother like he's a taxi driver, a chauffeur. just because yeah. you can't breathe, you uh-huh. get what you deserve. She had no seatbelt on. She <laughs> opened the window unauthorized. <laughs> Look, I am just saying, your brother is not your chauffeur. Sit up, sit up with him. Talk to him. They're not even listening to music. That's an awkward ride where everybody's mad to each other before she has an attack. No, 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 no. I'm going to argue. I can't believe we're doing this before the episode even starts. He, She was unable to get into the car on her own. He put her in the back seat. No, no, no. I'm talking about she sat in the back on the way to the party, and they didn't listen to music, and it was awkward because she sat in the back. So? He's a human being. <laughs> I don't understand your point. Nothing bad happens on the way to the party. Except his feelings get their head chopped off. No. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> Thank you for tuning into Horror Virgin. I'm Paige. I'm Mikey. And I'm your Horror Virgin, Todd, which means I don't mm-hmm. like scary movies, but you guys make me re-watch them. And this week, <laughs> we re-watched Hereditary. Hereditary. So, was this the second time all of you had seen this before? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to stick to the formula the whole episode, guys. <laughs> <laughs> this was actually my second time. This was my second time, too. I, I took a date and saw it in theaters, and I haven't seen it since. Okay, okay. That's what I was going to ask. Since you both weren't on the Hereditary original episode, mm-hmm. what were both of your first experiences with Hereditary? 
Scariest shit in the theater. Oh, I believe it. So I saw the trailer in the theater and the trailer scared me so bad I didn't go see it in the theater and, and watched it at a friend's house with the lights off and instantly loved it, but would have still rated it like a seven or an eight as far as scary scale goes. Oh, yeah. This movie is still terrifying. I'm still going to rate it very high on the scary scale. I think because it was the third episode and I didn't really quite know how to like gauge scary movies because it was like the fifth scary movie I'd seen in my life. I... Gave it a nine in that episode because I wanted to leave room for if there was a movie scarier than this. Right. To date, all the way till now, from like what, June 2018, I have not seen a scarier movie than this movie. Really? Like, this is my 10. What did you rate Deborah Logan? Deborah Logan, I think I also rated a nine. And if I didn't. Okay. It was a fool's error because it should be that movie's also fucking terrifying. But I think this movie is, this movie being hereditary is like specifically terrifying and like she dies in a similar way to how my brother died. And like, it's like, it also yeah. like hits on a lot of shit for me. And it's like supernatural jump scary, which is like the worst for me. I think for me, especially on a rewatch, first of all, on a rewatch, I'm in detective mode yeah. because- I fucking love the layers of an Ari Aster movie. So this was a lot less scary second time around for me. However, I was watching it and thinking about Deborah Logan and trying to think if Deborah Logan beats this one out for me. And I think it does because of my personal attachment to Alzheimer's and dementia. Yeah. Oh. And so I think that's the thing that pushes Deborah Logan over for me. That makes sense. The only thing that has been scarier for me on a rewatch was It Chapter One for oh, some really? reason. Which I didn't think was super scary in the theater, but when I rewatched it with Todd at, at Jen's house, I was like more scared than I was in the theater. Really? It was interesting. But this one was cool to rewatch because I noticed things I didn't notice in the first one. Same. The first time I watched it, like yeah. the light pole has the symbol on it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I was like, oh, they did it. There's a bunch of stuff like that. But then also I was like, man, this family communicates very terribly, does all of the wrong decisions. And really, they brought this upon themselves. I feel like Papa Burn does a decent job of trying to engage his family in conversations. Yes. Bro, okay, here, I have to interrupt you. I have to I draw know, the line. As soon, okay, I know a lot of people are going to call me like a bootlicker or like, I don't know, like a conservative or whatever. But I'm like, as soon as you find a headless corpse, I don't yeah, care what the situation oh, yeah, is. You yes. got to call somebody? You got to call 911. Immediately. Yes. You know, you just first thing you dial 911. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. no wandering around the house talking about it. You call 911. You don't know if she did it. She's unstable. You run. <laughs> you run. Yeah. No, I'm with you. It doesn't matter if you're out of your house jogging and then you see a headless corpse. Yeah. You don't know if this is a like possession issue or just the beginning 30 seconds of a Law and Order TV show. If you find yeah. one in your sub basement, call 911. <laughs> there's no situation where you don't call 911 for a headless corpse. That's all I'm saying. And you know, if they would have came, they would have taken it away and it would never have gone to the treehouse. <laughs> that is true. Which is where the movie kind of breaks down to me because seeing the floating corpses go up to the treehouse <laughs> always makes me laugh hysterically when I watch this film. <laughs> First it's time so and this creepy. time. Oh, no. Not me. I was like, whoa. <laughs> it's too weak in the Bernie's but, part two for me. Mikey, they don't look like the wacky inflatable arm whoa. guys outside no, of the car it's, dealership. It's, it's the smooth. <laughs> it's the yeah. smooth float. So the first time I saw this movie, I noticed about halfway through that there seemed to be visual cues for left-hand path leanings yeah. for when we're dealing with members of the cult. So this time, I 
made sure to watch for it all the way through. So I've taken notes of where it happens throughout the film at mm. not every single time because it's all over the place, but like at specific plot junctures where uh, we either re-justify the camera so that it is disconcerting or when we travel the wrong direction, which by the way, traveling to the party uh, past the pole where we see the symbol left to right, yeah, which is correct, but coming back. It's right to left, which is the way that's disconcerting because yeah. in Western films, we tend to travel the way that we read. Anyway, I also, and I had completely missed this the first time I watched it, the theme of the tragic hero and the destination of fate. I wrote that down in my notes this time too, Paige, because uh, that's pretty much yes. all the classroom scenes with Peter. That's what they're talking about. Yes. yes. Like in the very last one, they're talking about like Agamemnon and these other like classic yes. heroes tale journey type things. But specifically tragic heroes. Yes. Which is a hero bound by fate. Just like me. Which I would say typifies both <laughs> him and Tony Collette at different points in the film. Uh, and I'll talk in fun facts. I have a ton of fun facts. I will be Hell burning yeah. a ton throughout because I have so many. Burn them like Peter Gabriel or whatever his, his name, name is. Gab his Gabriel Burns. It's not Peter Gabriel. <laughs> <laughs> it's Gabriel Byrne. I would say less so for Gabriel Byrne, more so for the other two because the other two we see multiple times they try to make the right decision and it doesn't matter anyway. Like I, they try to do the right thing and it still kills somebody or kills them. Oh, like when she throws the book in the fire. And it kills him. Absolutely. Or when he sees that she's wheezing and immediately is like, get to the hot. Like he's trying to save her and it kills her. Yeah. I think he's more tragic. I don't think she's as tragic because I think her pursuit of holding on to her daughter leads down that path. And it's not a heroic pursuit to chase her daughter into the afterlife like that. He's definitely the main tragic hero. But once she realizes that she has to correct what she's done, she takes that place as well until she gets possessed. But I guess you know. that's I you know, usually man, I am not gonna go well on Tony Collette. Usually tragic heroes are decently good at their job. She was terrible at correcting herself. No, that's that's part of the problem with tragic heroes is that there's usually something about their personality or something about them and their belief or their viewpoint that prevents them from being as successful as they should be. That's the whole point of a tragic hero. Like Achilles with his heel. Exactly. Like Achilles, <laughs> or they talk about Heracles and his hubris. Like, yeah. that is the tragic hero. And we'll talk in fun facts about how Ari Aster views this film in regards to the tragic hero because he specifically pitched it as that in, in some very specific ways. I do think this is his best film. So far, yes. Well, because we've only got like the two to pull from. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> so. I, I think this will go down more so than Midsummer as like a, this is going to be like a horror classic, like put up there with The Exorcist. Like oh, when yeah. people start naming the best horror movies of all time, like 50 years from now, I can see people watching this film. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. And I still think in 50 years, we'll be pissed that Toni Collette didn't win an Oscar for her performance I'm still here. pissed. She was amazing in this movie. For sure. I personally really like Midsummer. I love the, the look of it. I, I love all of it. I'm willing to sit through the slow pacing because I love it. This movie is paced tighter. Oh, yeah. Which makes it more accessible while still cramming in all of the layers of stuff. I think this as a story is a little more fully formed. I think 
Midsommar lends itself a little bit more to debate, which is not always good for it. But I do love that movie. That said, I do think broad appeal, this is probably going to be recognized forever as his his better movie. This movie is way better, in my opinion. But but I don't I, I think so too. I'm not super into slow burns and I'm not like discounting anything that you just said. I just feel like for me, I am a basic bitch. And I love <laughs> yeah. like, things that you would call accessible, you know, like tighter movies that aren't slow burns. Right. Well, it also takes a lot of classic horror elements like possession or ghosts mm-hmm. yes. and haunted houses and, and like really modernizing in them in a way that hasn't been done before yeah. this. And so I think Midsummer has some really interesting things to say, but it's not as mainstream horror as say this. It's not. Is. But from like a filmmaking standpoint, they're both amazing they're movies. Both Ari Aster's the fucking man. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, I understand what you're saying. It's literally just like pick whichever one you like the best. Yeah. I'm like picking my words. I just I just don't like Midsummer. So. I, I know you don't, but it's it's also I, I feel like for a lot of women it's a very different movie experience. Yes. Yeah, I agree hundred percent agree with that. And that that's a huge part of it too, because there's very little horror made kind of in that lens and so that's kind of different about it too but what I do think uh, is kind of the secret sauce for both of these movies uh, and a couple other movies and I'll burn a fun fact right now do it do it we've talked about the cinematographer of this uh, movie before a probably when you did this movie but B, when we did Midsummer, yeah, he was also the cinematographer for Nobody. But do you know what else he shot this year? Ooh, I don't. Uh, not this year. The last time we looked at his cinematography was when we did Midsummer, and his newest project wasn't out yet. Yeah, but it's another movie that we specifically commented on having a beautiful visual language, and that is Fresh. He also shot Fresh. That makes complete. And I was like, this dude sense. has my visual number, apparently. Yeah. So, um, but that's another movie that like very much is layered visually, not quite as much as this. And this is due almost 100% in part to Ari Aster. This movie took three plus years in pre-production. That doesn't surprise me. It feels like he took a long time to think out everything in this movie. And I mean that as a compliment. Like, to its service, it is a great horror movie that I hope I will not have to watch a third time. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, watching it again today, I was like, man, I got to talk more people into watching this movie. Because, like, I genuinely enjoyed it today. I was like, I know this is supposed to be feeling uncomfortable the whole time, but it's so good. Yeah, when I posted the social share about us doing this movie again or whatever, people were like responding and like, man, I love horror movies, but I don't want to watch that movie again. Like, it is that <laughs> level of scary for people who even like horror movies and I still don't like them and I still was terrified by this movie. I, I also feel like part of the reason this is so scary for people, if you think about why Deborah Logan is scary for me, it's a huge part of that is the Alzheimer's and dementia element that has touched me personally. Mm-hmm. This movie is a meditation on grief and grief touches everyone personally. And so I think that's why it scares so many people the way it does because this is something everyone has experienced some measure of. Yeah. And I think that really gets to people. But I love it. Like, I loved it even more today than the first time. Not as scary for me today, but it made me just more excited to see whatever Ari Aster's making next. Oh, I'm sure it's going to be great. And respectful of why it takes him, like, three to four years to make a movie. I mean, if he's going to put out bangers like this, he can take the time. Take your time. Please. And I know not everyone likes Midsummer, but I do. And I appreciate the time that went into that movie, too. So I'm just like, do your thing, man. Wild out. I'll watch four hours of some shit. Let's do it. (laughs) 
Wilding out with Ari Aster is way different than wilding out with Nick Cannon. That's that's what I just learned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you won't get pregnant with one. Yeah, Ari Aster gonna knock you up. <laughs> I'm actually really excited to revisit this uh, with both of you because I know Paige, you know yes. a lot about like the left hand path magic stuff. Oh yeah. But Mikey from like a grief and trauma angle, like we didn't have either of those two voices on last time we went through this. So I'm like super excited to go through it with you two specifically. That we just got back from our winter break and we haven't recorded it in like two weeks. And <laughs> I, I just genuinely missed you guys. Oh, I'm so rested. It feels so good. <laughs> <laughs> so do you guys want to go through it scene by scene? Yes. All right, let's do it. The film opens with an obituary, which I did not remember from the first time I watched it. Um, but I think is actually super important because it actually foreshadows some of what happens if you read through it. What if you don't read through it? <laughs> I know immediately what kind of TV and like I movie know. watcher Mikey is just by that statement alone. I love it. <laughs> I was like, okay. Because Ari Aster <laughs> puts everything in a place for a reason. Yeah. I'm type B. I'm like, this is a type A movie. <laughs> it, it is. It, I'm not a type A person except when it comes to these kinds of films. You don't think? No. Because I'm know. messy and disorganized. And Oh, I thought that was just from the ADHD, like me. I think I'm pretty type A. Yes. I, yeah, I would say you probably are. I, I am... think one of us has to be. <laughs> so I wrote it down because I assumed Mikey wasn't going to read it. So... Yes. Perfect page. Ellen Taper Lee, 78, passed away after a prolonged illness at her daughter Annie's house on April 3rd, 2018. Beloved wife of the late Martin Lee, rest in peace, devoted mother of Annie Lee Graham and the late Charles Lee, rest in peace. Now, pause there for a second. Charles is Annie's brother, the one yes. that we will find out dies by suicide with some schizotypic elements or does he exactly yeah i was gonna say like we'll talk about that later okay good now also charlie the daughter is clearly named after him yeah which also makes sense because that's the path that the possession has traveled yeah because we will find out annie didn't let her mom anywhere near peter Anyway, cherished grandmother of Peter Graham and Charlie Graham. She is also survived by her son-in-law, Stephen Graham. She will be missed. Reposing at Kingstone Funeral Home Friday, 12 a.m. to 12 p.m. Funeral service to be held on Saturday at 10 a.m. Burial will take place at Spring Blossom Cemetery. We cut to ominous music, which we will talk about in fun facts. This movie feels like a panic attack. <laughs> yes. Well, Peter has multiple panic attacks in this well, film. Yeah. The, the movie itself feels like you're anxious and then builds to a panic attack. Yeah, yeah. It's, honestly, it's creepy as fuck out of the gate. Mm -hmm. So the music in this movie, I'll, I'll burn a slight fun fact, although we will talk more about it in fun facts because there's a lot to talk the music alone took two years. What? Wow. Okay. Who made it? Did he make it himself? Yeah. Ari Aster was like, shit, I have to learn how to write music now. God damn it. <laughs> I got to figure out how to How does the music take two years? It's basically forgetting Sarah Marshall where they're like, bomb, bomb. It is not. The, the music is layered both with uh, vocalizations that have been changed to sound inhuman, uh, the sounds of nature at night. Uh, as well as instruments and a few other elements, but also 85 minutes of this movie continuously are scored, which is three to four times more than most yeah, movies. That's a lot. So like when you think about the fact <laughs> that the average movie score even so, like takes a couple months at minimum, this took two years because it's like four times as much stuff. It's more layered 
And the scoring actually started before principal photography took place. Wow. Okay. Which is very unusual. Yeah, of course. Ari Aster, once the movie started to go into pre-production and then uh, principal photography, connected with uh, the man who would score the film. uh, And they collaborated on what the tone should sound like. So... It was a very collaborative experience. Was that guy Trent Reznor? Because it sort of sounds like that kind of vibe. Okay. It's not him, but like similar. I feel like if you had hired Trent Reznor, you would have ended up with something very similar. But (laughs) it probably would have been a little bit more like electric sounding. What you would call industrial. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. And this is a little more organic. It is. Which also is the case for Midsummer. That level of hands-on-ness for this movie permeates the entire thing. When we get more into the house, we'll talk about a little bit of the production design and kind of how that comes to be, because you might not know this, and I took some notes throughout the movie of when it happens, but a substantial amount of the time when you're seeing parts of the house, you are actually seeing miniatures, not full sets. That's cool. Yeah, it's wild. (laughs) Like, they did crazy shit on this movie. Uh, So we get a shot of the treehouse through Annie's studio window. And this is where we'll kind of get a slow pan through her studio of the miniatures that she's working on and close on the miniature of Peter's room. And as we close in on it, we reveal that it is Peter's room in live action in full size. Now, the way that they were able to do this is the entire house interior is one soundstage. And they built it simultaneously with the team building the miniatures. Yeah, you'd have to because it's it lines up perfect. Exactly. Those two teams built exactly to scale along with each other the entire time so that the miniatures and the real full-size sets could be used interchangeably, which is one of the only times I think anyone's ever done that. Uh, but it's super cool looking and it makes you question a lot of the time in the movie if what you're seeing is a miniature or if you're seeing a real set. Yeah. And I think that's very, very cool. It is very, very cool. So in Peter's bedroom, Stephen, Gabriel Byrne, wakes him up, gets him a suit and asks him if his sister Charlie slept in her room last night. He says he doesn't know. We cut to Gabriel Byrne climbing up into the treehouse where Charlie has slept and telling her to come downstairs where Tony Collette is already waiting in the car dressed in black. So we know that it's the day of the funeral. We cut to the funeral. And one of the first comments Tony Collette makes is there's a lot of strange faces here. I think mom would actually be surprised. We'll find out later. Those are the cult members. Yeah. What we come to find out is that grandma had a hobby she couldn't share with the family. So they just thought she yes. had no friends. <laughs> and it turns out she had a lot of really dedicated, very creepy friends. Super creepy friends. Yeah. And this is one of those things that on a second viewing, you're like, oh, I know who the friends are. Well, yeah, yeah. We know now. And uh, honestly, I was shocked at how much I remembered like Every beat of this film, it was burned into my memory because it scared me so much the first time I saw it. And it didn't help me at all with like the jump scares and stuff. It still scared me every time, even though I knew it was coming. It sucks. I hate it. Here's what's terrible. I realized I'd forgotten huge sections of this film. And so I was like, oh, that's right. That happens like this whole time. But I did remember the last 15 minutes of the movie. That's the scariest part of this movie is the last 15 minutes. Oh, yeah. Paige, I took literally a few pages of notes up until like the last <laughs> 20 minutes of the movie. And then I could not. <laughs> Here's, fuck My this. hands were in front of my face. I was pulling my hoodie up to like my nose. It was, yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't. As she's giving the eulogy, we do get a close up on her necklace. 
and a close-up of grandma's necklace in the coffin. Yeah. Uh, which, if you've seen the movie once, you know, you already, the red flags go off, you know. Yeah. I found myself feeling like, wow, I didn't realize they were introducing so much of this stuff so early. Yeah. It's, it's sort of like everything is out in the open the whole movie. The viewer, the first time, just does not have the context to understand that. Right. Until later in the movie. So on a second rewatch, now that you have the context, you're like, oh shit. It's everywhere. Yeah. Like the grandmother sort of in death, at least, was not hiding at all who she was with that cult. No. But her family didn't have the context to know that. that I mean, I feel the same way about Nope. Where yeah, that's fair. And, and probably Get Out too. Although I don't, I don't know if I mentioned it on Get Out, but I, I feel the same way about both. Where on a second or third viewing, you're like, oh shit, it was there the whole time. Or even <laughs> yeah, same cinematographer in Fresh when she walks into the grocery store and stands under a sign that says Fresh, Fresh meat. meat. Yeah, I didn't catch that the first time, but the second time you can't unsee it, and so it's kind of like it's that kind of stuff. Yeah. So we end the eulogy. Everyone's kind of viewing the body. We watch as a creepy guy stands and smiles at Charlie. And we're seeing a lot yeah. of this kind of through Charlie's eyes. Well, they're the most mobile. Did you say mobile? Yeah. Because she loses her head? Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> the shame in that second yeah was well earned, Mikey. <laughs> Charlie watches as someone puts something on her grandmother's lips. Yeah. And then makes signs over her left, right to left. So she travels past the casket yeah. right to left, which again, this is the first time we see it in the movie. It's going to happen quite a bit. I'll call it out a few times. It's almost always linked to something with the cult. And it is definitely a deliberate reference to the idea of left hand path magic yeah. within a cult ritual. If you're left handed, I'm not throwing shade at you i am left-handed this is just how they refer to it in occult you know writings but really high level left-hand path is like trickster magic so you might call yeah the dark it's arts. chaos magic and yeah yeah exactly but that's more information than the average person i think needs although look into it though it's fun oh, i have the same thing i have like the dark pickup arts yes you do you read tucker <laughs> max's how to score at hogwarts and you learned the the magic of the dark pickup arts. God, Tucker Max references dating you. There's so many other new people who are just as dumb. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, I should say Andrew Tate. You're right. But like Tucker Max was sort of Andrew Tate when I was in high school and middle school when I cared about that shit. I wonder what happened to him. He got married, settled down, has like four or five kids and lives in Cincinnati. Probably because he said all that stuff just to get rich. No, I have no idea what he's oh. doing. Okay, we've got to know. We've got to know. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking it up for you. Oh, I never finished what the right-hand path was. That is like your benevolent, good, like straight up just magic magic. So uh, since 2009, Tucker Max has assisted multiple startups as a venture capitalist, and he's the founder of Scribe, a company that helps writers basically write and publish their own books. That's like a legit company. And awesome. he lives with his wife and four children near Austin, Texas. Oh, was so close! Hey, I said everything <laughs> except so for crazy. Cincinnati, not Austin. Oh my okay. God. Right and left hand path magic. Right hand path magic is more intentional and orderly left-hand path magic is chaos magic which because they are trying to invoke one of the kings of hell which is a reference from the lesser key of solomon a demonology book don't get into it but yeah <laughs> th that demon's payment it's payment who is a, a god of mischief thought he was one of the kings of hell like they said at the end 
uh, the kings of hell are all lesser gods. Which hell? <laughs> oh, Traditional God. Christian hell? Yes, Christian hell. Okay, so. Like Dante hell. Yes. Uh, this is a, a pretty old book because the church at various points wilded out in a lot of crazy ways. Demonology in particular is one of them. And some yeah. eras of the Catholic church in particular were super into it. Others were not. Uh, this comes about right around the same time as the Malleus Maleficarum, where we kind of create a, a book of like how to find witches and torture witches. It's a pretty shitty text. Pretty shitty text. <laughs> a lot of it comes around the same time because if you're going to have witches, you have to have people that they are in service of. And the Bible obviously references the idea of demons or evil spiritual forces so there are books published around this time to try and give those forces names and references. And the most famous of them is the Lesser Key of Solomon, which is a reference of famous demons, or they are often referred to as kings of hell or syncretized with pagan gods. So in this case, Paimon would be a high-ranking demon listed as a king of hell, but also probably syncretized with most of your mischief gods for your surrounding belief system. So if you wanted to connect it to something like a Loki, that is probably pretty accurate. All I know is that he got the dumb hat. <laughs> they all kind of do. <laughs> Out of all of that, Mikey was like, yo, your crown look like a Burger King crown. You got to step it up. Oh, they're like, we just murdered your whole family. Yeah, hold on. We're going to put on like a Archie comic version of a hat on you <laughs> to bring you back. Like... <laughs> That is such an accurate description, though. It does look like that like red hat they put on Archie. So to, to give you a little more details, The Lesser Key of Solomon was written in the 1600s anonymously, said to have been compiled with slightly older texts, which makes sense. Malleus Maleficarum is 13, 1400s. So mm. that kind of makes sense. Uh, it lists out 72 different demons of varying authority and status. But yes, so in 1600s, that this would be tail end of the Crusades. That, that's not super surprising. There's a lot of stuff that comes out in the next hundred or so years. Uh, like Macbeth is written not long after this, which includes the three weird sisters, which are a reference to the Greek fates. Well, they didn't have fandoms back then, you know? There wasn't <laughs> like a Star Trek. I mean, church was Star Trek. Exactly. This, it had to be church everything. Was Star Trek. They needed some like expanded universe stuff. Like This is that. This this is their I MCU. Know. It's it, it's their hell CU. It's their hell cinematic universe. So we cut to their house and they do enter the house right to left. Yeah. And as they enter the house, there's one miniature that's lit the entire movie, nighttime, daytime, doesn't matter. And it is on their left. This is the point at which Tony Collette turns to Gabriel Byrne and says, should I be sadder? Which I think is actually like a really common feeling around. Yes. Complicated grief. Yes. Which is the term for like, you're supposed to be sad or you are sad, but like say your parent dies and you weren't close with them and you didn't talk to them and you're like not as sad as you thought. Okay. 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 If you have a complex relationship with someone, your grief when they die is going to be complex. That's the simple solution. Yes. But also like grief is weird and like, you know, I've never grieved more than I did for my last dog. I sobbed like a baby for weeks. When we lost Pupcake, same. Well, I mean, yeah. I didn't have six others to transfer that love to. So, like, <laughs> I mean, I don't think it was the same. But that's fine. 
Wow. Okay, I'm being shamed because I had other animals to snuggle. Don't while going shame him for grief. his complex grief. <laughs> it's complex because there's six other animals. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> I I know that hoarders also have complex emotional processes as well. So I'll leave you leave those to you, Mikey. Just be grateful that you never had to like really think about. Oh my God, how am I going to explain death to Schnooka, my other dog? You sound like an insane person. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the joke, Mikey. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to split the difference. Okay. When animals have lived together, you do have to find a way to let them know that the they animal has died. Grieve. Yeah, you have to take the head of the... Okay. Oh, no, no, no. no. <laughs> Mikey, no, absolutely You have not. to keep it in the attic. <laughs> no, just like this family did with their grandmother. Yeah, exactly. Uh, to bring this back to a more grounded place. Yes, please. Uh, when we lost my grandmother during pandemic. Please don't tell me you put her in your attic. Well, yeah, that's where her <laughs> snacks were. Oh, <laughs> no. When we lost my grandmother during pandemic, she had suffered from dementia for 15 years. Oof. And yeah. for the last few years had had not remembered us and was still very pleasant. And, you know, we like spending time with her and everything, but sure. it was a very different relationship. And so while it is incredibly sad and you still grieve, it's a little different from, let's say, in this movie, when Tony Collette suddenly loses her daughter unexpectedly. Yeah, I was going to say that. Yes. I feel like the movie does a really good job of contrasting her experience there where she also talks about the fact that her mother was very ill for a long time and and struggled with mental illness for a long time and they had a difficult relationship and so as she's processing and going through all of the paperwork and the funeral and everything for this death she's not necessarily having the emotional reaction that she thinks that she should be contrast that when charlie dies and she is torn asunder oh yeah she is begging for death in that yes. I, I was yes. sobbing in that scene oh yeah i mean and I, I sort of understand why in the movie it's positioned that way but also i think in reality it, it is this way yeah and it's that you know if you have an aging grandparent or parent or someone who is struggling end of life and is for years mm -hmm. you are coming to terms with their mortality for that number of years right you're like saying yes. goodbye to them over that course of time if you lose someone in an instant you thought was always going to be in your life like a child mm -hmm. like a parent should not have to bury their child like i mean i definitely understand why she loses it in that scene where yeah. we're just seeing her on the floor in grief it was so sad Ugh. yeah well and i like that this movie shows both because yeah. one of the things ari aster wanted for this movie that he talked about in interviews when it came out was to depict picked grief in a very realistic way yeah and i think this movie does because it depicts the complex nature of grief when you feel like you should feel worse and maybe you don't uh but then also the the nature of grief when it is unexpected and how to cope and how to bad like some people don't cope well in this movie yeah. you know and don't have good coping skills and don't open up anyway uh we see her little miniature world and she's working on the hospice room where her mom uh, was spending the last few months of her life. Yeah, which we come to find out is in their house. Um, it wasn't like right. at a hospice. It was like in a room in their house. 
And Annie, or Tony Collette's character, was, I assume, just nursing her through her illness, right? Yes. When we get to that group therapy scene, we'll find out more about it, and we we get a little bit of exposition there. Yeah. In a good way. I do think that's a smart way to give us the exposition we need. It, it absolutely is. But, like, I don't think I even comprehended the first time watching this movie all the way through how dysfunctional the relationship between Annie and her mother was. Yes. And Annie's family prior yes. to being married and having her own. Yeah, all of that was almost new to me. I knew there was family weirdness between, like, that she had a brother that mm-hmm. may have died or was still alive just out of the picture. I couldn't remember. But, man, it really stuck out this time, second time through. Yes. So, we cut to Peter's room, and his dad comes in to kind of check on him, see if he's doing okay which is a good parent thing. They've just been through a funeral. Uh, And then Annie goes to Charlie's room. And Charlie is what I would call an amateur taxidermist. Uh, (laughs) She makes like little trash dolls that are very creepy, just like in and of themselves creepy. They are creepy, but honestly, I was just like... They're also kind of cool. Yeah, I was really impressed that this like, I don't know, how old do you think she was? 11? She's 13. She's 13. Okay. I was really surprised by her initiative to start a business and sell like her arts and crafts on Etsy so I was like I'm here for it this is Regretsy fodder if I have ever seen it (laughs) do you guys remember Regretsy yeah yeah okay so Annie in talking to Charlie's like well you were grandma's favorite so I know this is probably gonna hurt you know hit you hard essentially and Charlie's like well she wanted me to be a boy which will not make sense until later in the movie but then it will make too much sense and it'll be troubling yeah it'll make you very sad later in the movie yeah and and Tony Collette does not understand why at, at this moment she's just like well grandma was weird so uh <laughs> and she was so like I get it that, that makes sense yeah yeah but then she asks Charlie asks well who will take care of me when you die She's like, well, dad or Peter will take it. Like, it'll be okay. Yeah. Which seems like too young of a conversation for a 13-year-old. But I think she and her grandmother had a problematically close bond, it sounds like, a little bit. I mean, they definitely did have a very close bond, we find out over the course of the movie. I mean, even more so than the grandmother had with her own daughter, Annie, right? So, like, yeah. Correct. You're definitely right about that. Yeah. Now, on the wall, we get a quick shot of the word satiny. Yeah, which I love my sheet satiny. Oh, yeah. Satiny is the way to go. High thread count. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's so mm-hmm. breathable. And that's what Payman was trying to tell them. They're like, this, these are cotton and they don't breathe very well. It's hot. She needs satiny sheets. <laughs> it is not. Oh, my bad. Okay, sorry. Both this and <laughs> Zasas, which is written on uh, Peter's wall, and then uh, Lift to Watch Pandemonium, which is written on the bedroom wall at, at a certain point. Uh, satiny is a word used in the ritual of necromancy, uh, as is Zasas. Most of them uh, come from the writings of Aleister Crowley. Uh, but Liftowich pandemonium is actually a combination of a Hebrew word meaning open up uh, and pandemonium being a reference to. Oh, oh, I get the It's like a city of demons. It's what hell is referred to is called pandemonium. Well, that's very cool. I honestly didn't know pandemonium was like the OG name for hell. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and and satiny specifically is about bringing dead things back to life, which okay. for Charlie in this movie is very apt considering her tendency to use dead animals in her her pieces, uh, but also because she is connected to the grandmother in a troubling way and we will find out is likely possessed. 
Would you guys pay for a therapist? Let's just throw. I just want to throw out some ideas. Sure. Uh, <laughs> if you as a couple's therapist, and like you could come in and he's like, our relationship's dead, and then like he does a necromancy ritual. <laughs> would you feel fulfilled? I feel like it would just be an excuse for my husband to be like, my dick's dead. Can I bury it in your butt? Like to like you know make crazy jokes. Uh, no, I would not feel fulfilled. I well, I also I don't talk to the spirit world. I, I leave it alone because you also never know who you're talking to, as this movie will illustrate as well. I mean, this movie is a cautionary tale of why you don't fuck with it, because Tony Collette is not a believer in like seance magic. I'm not saying she's not Christian or right. whatever, but she like clearly in that scene with Joan doesn't believe in it. And then she goes to Joan's place and sees it happening. And then Joan is like, you do it. Read these words you don't understand. No, no, yeah, ma'am. Nope. That's nope. the moment everything nope. for me says no when I walk away. Not because I think it's not going to happen, Paige, but because I know it will. Yeah, you're not <laughs> tricking me into, you know, reading some ancient text. No. no. Anyway, Tony Collette goes through a box of her mom's stuff and finds a book that says notes on spiritualism with a note inside that basically says, forgive me all I could not tell you, but our sacrifice will pale next to the rewards mom now this is clearly written by her mom knowing that she's about to die too like she has to sacrifice herself and she is going to be a part of this ritual yeah right and <laughs> it's addressed to annie directly which is crazy yes. so she closes the book closes up the box and looks into the corner and she is convinced that there is someone there i mean it does look like there might be something there it's because there are people there in the shot okay I need to talk about something with this family. Please. This family has a smile-esque disorder. Yes. Where they don't believe lights should be turned on in the home. <laughs> yes. Yes. These kind of things get on my nerves. Mikey, you would hate it here. Natalie hates lights. Look at look at my house. I know. <laughs> Jake is a light person as well, where he he's like, if we don't need to have it on, turn it off. And I'm like, I get that, but ghosts. I know, right? Look, it's not the Great Depression. I calculated in high school physics how much energy and money it took to fuel a light bulb per hour. And then that was before all the LED stuff. And so like when my family was like, you need to turn those lights off. I was like, it takes one tenth of a cent per hour. I will pay you the money. Yeah. Bill me, bish. And here's the thing. I know I'm wrong. I know from a conservationist and environmental standpoint, I am incorrect. But from a ghost standpoint, I'm right. I'm still alive. Uh, yeah. You know when I turn my lights all the way on? When I'm feeling anxious or scared or sad? Like, Mikey. Yeah. Every light in this room is on, which includes an overhead light, a ring light, and a fucking canopy light that I set up here for extra light i'm talking to you gabrielle burns when you know your wife may be <laughs> going gabrielle, gabrielle Burn. burns is not his name it's gabriel burns, burns. mr burns no mr no. burns <laughs> he's such a good actor and you were disrespecting the man he is a really really good actor yeah out of everyone i've made fun of this is where you've drawn the line you're making fun of d'artagnan he actually is a very good actor. I'm a very big fan of yes. this. <laughs> but also, like, if you thought maybe your significant other, who had once had a psychotic episode, is possibly having 
another one. Oh, yeah. Would you yeah. turn the hall light on when you walk down the hall? Yes. Absolutely. You I would. also would have called someone for help, like a he family does. member or, he, oh, that's right. No, he almost writes an email. It's, he almost writes an email and yeah. he gets interrupted. But it's, also, like, an email is a very low priority call for help. Yeah, Mikey, if you need me to help you move in a pinch or whatever, you're not going to email me. Like, who is he even emailing? I think he's emailing a, a therapist she has seen in the past because the email says I am worried that Annie is on the brink of or possibly in the midst of a psychotic break and then if that person got that email which would be probably two days later let's be honest therapists aren't good at checking their emails he doesn't get a chance to send it oh I know but even if he did they would all been dead anyway because he's like (laughs) that person would be like oh that's an emergency you need to call for emergency help emergency psychiatric services yeah what would have happened is gabrielle burns would have gotten a like automatic reply from his therapist saying they're on vacation and if it's an emergency dial 911 yep yeah um i do because this much like smile this is one of those things where you're like from the perspective of someone who is just witnessing this from the outside it does appear to be a an episode of mental illness and you would react that way. But we as the viewer and them in the story know that it's supernatural. It's always so troubling because you're just like, oh, no. <laughs> like, even if people did everything they could, there was nothing well, you could do. I mean, <laughs> we don't confirm. Besides the floating corpses. Take that out of it. I'm sorry. The floating corpses, the crawling on the walls. Yeah. The bowing corpses. There's a lot going on in this. I would love that this movie ended with Peter was just sitting there in his Archie hat, his whole family murdered, and the corpse is brought up to the to the, to the stand, and then he's like not transformed, and then he just like has to fight his way out. I think the movie leaves that up to you. I interpreted it way more of like, oh, he did not turn into that person. I think it's very possible, and I actually really do like that about the end of this movie. That it is truly a question of is this real or was this all in people's heads? And the only thing that really kind of suggests that it was not in people's heads is when she's like crawling on the wall and shit and the floating. But if you're if your question (laughs) is, is he having a break as well, then who knows? Yeah, but I think the movie's ambiguity at the end allows for an interpretation that maybe all of this was part of a, an onset of mental illness that potentially is hereditary. Ooh, boom, that could be. But we're seeing it from the perspective of the person with mental illness. We have unreliable narrators. Because we're actually seeing those things happen on screen. Right. Well, yes, if you are not careful, you could lose your head. <laughs> Don't play around with your mental health. Or piano wire. Oh, yeah. But the title of the movie Hereditary, I think, can be read multiple ways. Number one, the straightforward way that the movie posits, where this is a possession slash curse that is traveling this family line because of an invocation started by the grandmother, therefore making it hereditary. Mm -hmm. You could also look at this as, let's say, Tony Collette's brother has schizophrenia her mother showed signs of mental illness she definitely does it's possible that peter does too which in that case is also hereditary i think you could very easily and accurately read this movie either way and that's why it's great i personally read it as supernatural because of the amount of left hand path magic contained in the film same but i i do not think it would be inaccurate 
to read this as an unreliable narrator story. Mm -hmm. I mean, unless Ari Aster has said one way or another, like there wouldn't be a way. He has. We'll talk about it in fun facts. Oh, shit. Okay. Well, fuck it. Let's let's move on. (laughs) Let's get back into it. I because I also feel like like Midsummer has kind of an ambiguous ending as well, but then he has a definitive opinion on it. Well, he had to do that because there's a very toxic interpretation of that. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that it's just like Fight Club for girls. Yeah, I think that's a really funny way to put that. Now, here's the thing. Something that I really do like about Ari Aster when he gives his take on the ends of his films is that he recognizes the nature of the ambiguity where he's like, in my mind, it's this. However, it could very well be this. Yeah. And I think that's fair. And I think that's a good way to. That's how you not piss off people who like your movies. I think he does. I think he makes his movies ambiguous to have that result. And I respect that because it's hard to do. You just spin a top at the end. Oh, God. (laughs) Anyway, so she's convinced there's somebody in the corner because she's allergic to lights. Now, fun fact, there is someone in the corner. Yeah. Uh, Pretty much any time in this movie when somebody looks up into a dark corner and thinks they see someone, but they can't quite make it out, there is someone there. They also did this in Haunting of Hill House, where uh, what they do is they actually put people, and usually it's a stand-in. In some cases in this movie, there's a couple specific characters that it is, but they put people standing just out of the range of visibility yeah, so that your eyes pick up on the fact that there is someone there but can't make them out. And it is a device to make you feel uncomfortable and scared of the unknown. And then, of course, when she flicks the lights on, there's nobody there. Yeah, it does that lights out thing where it goes from you sort of see it, sort of see it to like nothing's there. Well, I mean, yeah, everything that should be there is there, but there's no person there. Anyway, she comes out into the hallway and she's like, I just scared myself in the workshop. I'm sorry. Like, it's fine. And Gabriel. Gabrielle. <laughs> I do like that. He like when she says that he's like, oh, I'm sorry. And like, yeah, she gives him a kiss on the cheek. I feel like the whole time Papa Byrne is like trying to be a supportive partner and good dad. And for his trouble, they either murder him in a schizophrenic break or murder him through supernatural stuff. And I feel bad for the man. One of the two. Why you got to do D'Artagnan like that? He was fated to be murdered either way. (laughs) Because the first title of this movie was Burn After Breeding. (laughs) Oh. Oh. Oh my god, I was not expecting a joke that good in that moment, and I apologize for it. That hit me in a very funny way. Now, (laughs) we cut to school, where Charlie is not taking a quiz, but rather working on one of her trash dolls, and the teacher kind of refocuses her, like, hey, we're going to take the quiz now. And as she does, a bird flies and hits the window and clearly dies, because you get, like, a blood splatter on the window. Oh yeah, it's, like, got a ring around it of, like, pink mist yes uh and we get a close-up from charlie's pov of a pair of giant scissors on the teacher's desk we cut over to peter's class where they are discussing the tragic hero cycle starting with heracles they will of course move on to agamemnon and the other members of the trojan war yeah but he's too busy looking at the butt of the girl in front of him yeah yeah it brought me back I know, Mikey, I was like, oh, shit, this is like not great behavior, but I totally did this. I'm so sorry, Amber Callahan. (laughs) I do think it's really funny that in class, the teacher is basically saying we don't look at all of the signs 
So they are unable to avoid their fate because things are happening right in front of them and they don't realize. And he's like looking at a butt and like, do you want to smoke a bowl later? Because he is not paying attention. He's fully not paying attention. Yeah, it's hard to pay attention. Uh, I will say that I asked the girl in front of me in English class if I could look at her butt while she sat in front of me. And she said yes. So consent's important. It is important. And honestly, I'm a little impressed that you asked that. Yeah, I was wildly inconsistent with flirting. I have no idea. (laughs) Like, you know, in the young, it was like science. Like, you're just throwing out ideas, hypothesis. Because you're just like seeing what Even though she said yes, I totally was convinced she was not into me. Oh, I I don't know how I would have reacted if somebody asked me that in high school. I think I would have been freaked out. You probably would have said yes in the moment because you're afraid of what they might do if you say no. And then tell your therapist in 12 years that you were sexually assaulted in the eighth grade. I didn't touch her. Uh, I'm also like at a certain point, I'm like, well, I'm sitting in front of you, so I can't stop you from looking at my We had a very flirty. I know. But she was a year older. So, and you know, back then that was like a big deal. You know, so I was like, she would never like me. That was a big deal back then. What the hell was wrong with us? <laughs> well, Paige still won't let me date younger. That's because you're trying to go too young, Mikey. You're trying to go too young. You got a half your age plus seven. That's like the bare minimum you can do. No, even that is too young, I think. Because then at that point, you're like two different generations with two different eras of life experience. And the older you get, the more that gap closes because your life experience is pretty consistent. But like... So I, if I date younger, lots of trauma. Is that what you're saying? That you'll be causing... I'm saying you're causing the trauma <laughs> at that point. <laughs> I like how Paige and I both went to the exact same endpoint. I have another hot take. Okay. Well, Mikey, hit me with your hot take. Mikey's hot takes. Is it for the part of the movie that we're in? Or just in general? Just in general. Okay, wait. I I was going to say wait for like two seconds so we can finish. Mikey, hold on to that hot take. Yeah. Just a second. (laughs) Hot take. They continue to talk about the tragic hero cycle and specifically talk about what is more tragic, having the ability to have free will or being bound by fate. And they talk about how fate traps people into a hopeless, basically pawns in a hopeless machine, which we will find out is the case in this movie. Yeah. Go ahead, Mikey. Hot take. Every time you hear that clicking noise, Uh that girl actually has a detachable head. And that clicking is when she's like... (laughs) Dispensing candy out of her neck? That's her literally popping off her Lego Uh head and popping on another Lego head. Okay. It's an ambiguous ending. I wonder what Ari Aster has said about her detachable head. I don't know. I do know that in the trailer, it depicted grandma as alive and her clicking. Uh, So the clicking is hereditary, which makes sense because we do see Peter do it at the end. Yeah, all of them do it. I don't think, wait, do we, no, we do see Annie do it once. No, we see Annie hear it. Ah, that's right. Sorry, you're right. Mm -hmm. So we cut to lunchtime where Charlie collects the head of that dead bird, cuts it off with the scissors and takes it. And... As she does, she sees a lady across the street who waves at her. It's not someone she knows. We will find out this is a cult member who knew her grandmother. Yeah. We cut back to the house where Annie is working on her miniatures while looking up on her computer something that says presumed apparitions or apparitions. Ostensibly, she is examining whether or not she saw a ghost the night before. But she basically makes a tiny computer with that same web page on it. She walks down the hallway 
after hearing Gabriel Byrne come home and notices that her mom's old room is open, which is weird because no one's lived there. And we notice that there is a triangle carved into the floor of the room. And we see another triangle that looks just like that towards the end of this movie on that table. And I was like, oh, Mm. they did whatever culty shit in that room. So there is actually a method to the madness as far as the shapes. We'll talk about it in fun facts, but it plays with sacred geometry. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. She closes mom's room and asks Gabriel Byrne, like, hey, did you go in there? And he's like, no. And she's like, well, the door was open. So he locks the door and she's like, hey, I know this is irrational, but I just I I got kind of scared last night. Locking it would make me feel better. I have a question. Mm -hmm. If you saw a triangle like carved into your hardwood floor, would you not be like, I think my mom fucking carved a triangle into my floor like that is the first thing i would say i feel like she knew but did not want to acknowledge that her mom was into some weird shit because during the eulogy she said my mom had secret rituals that she kept even from us and so i think she maybe was just like that was mom and i think she also chalks some of that up to mental illness and so i think for her it might just be a reminder of that mental illness which upsets her. That's fair. It's like when I die and my children find my micro machine. <laughs> and they're like, what does this mean? <laughs> so what you can't see is Paige rolling her micro machine sand crawler across the Zoom video. Mm-hmm. What grown man would need so many of these? What was he hiding? <laughs> and where was he hiding them? They're small, Paige. They're micro machines. I, I think it's not the size of the machine. It's the motion of the rolling. <laughs> anyway, as they're having this conversation, the cemetery calls Gabriel Byrne. Yeah. And he takes it and walks away. Annie leaves. And we find out that the grandmother's grave has been desecrated. Now, what we'll find out is that her body has been exhumed, essentially. Her body has been stolen. They would say that. They'd be like, mm, her grave's been desecrated is a lot different than saying she got dug up. Well, I think they didn't want to admit it. I mean, that may be true too, Paige, but like yeah. your grandmother's grave or your mother's grave has been desecrated. It could be like they have security footage of someone peeing on it when they were drunk one night wandering around. Someone took a dump on her gravestone? <laughs> Was your mom Gigi Allen? Like what's that? <laughs> or like spray painted it or something like that. Right. You wouldn't think... Someone stole the body. Like, I agree with Mikey. I think they really buried the lead. It's definitely the manager. Hey, (laughs) just got to let you know something happened. Little desecration. We're looking into it. We'll have more information available. (laughs) I do think that that is a mistake. What you got to do in that situation is go on the blame game. Be like, I can't believe you guys came here and dug up your grandmother. <laughs> this is on you. We're coming after you for all your money. And they're just We're like, gonna charge you to rebury her. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they would have to like call the authorities. They have to report that. It's a crime. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. we never see any police in this movie, but I do think there is like a detective assigned to the Who stole that old lady's body case? Well, he's about to find it in a house full of dead people. Well, and we do see (laughs) him. I mean, you're right. We do see him read an email about it later that shows the grave. It does. And it's straight up dug up. So I was part of the alumni organization for my sorority because I changed schools, whatever. And so I was an advisor for a while. And that means that like if something goes wrong, people call you or whatever. And so I got a call from the the house and they were like, someone vandalized our letters because we'd have like big sorority letters outside the house. Yeah. And I was like, oh, no. I was like, is everything okay? And she's like, they ruined it. I can't believe it. And I was like, what? What did they write? Like, what happened? She's like, somebody 
spray painted. I was like, what does it say? And in my mind, I'm thinking it's going to be like whores or whatever. Yeah, something terrible. Yeah, it just said, fuck the police. And I laughed for like 10 <laughs> solid minutes. I thought it was the funniest thing ever. And I felt because I was like, I get that you're upset. <laughs> like, I understand. But also, I don't know why they chose us, but I'm kind of amused. I'm um, surprised you weren't like, oh, that was me that did that. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they did leave it for a while and then eventually just paint it back over it. But but yeah. the girl who initially called was just like, oh, my God. <laughs> and she was funny. like, OK, thanks. Bye. And you were like, hey, cab bitch and hung up. <laughs> Paige is very anti-cop on the phone. Not any other time. Just for this bit. Just on, on the, the phone. phone. Yeah. Just on the phone. So she decides to leave the house to go see a movie while he's on the phone. Doesn't invite him. Well, because she's not going to the movie. Right. And I, it's interesting. Like, this is a layer I didn't get the first time I watched it, too. She was forced to go to that or a support group before. Yes. We don't really quite know exactly why, but she was forced to before, and it did help, right? I think it was for her brother's passing. I think so, too. I'm not sure they ever fully say that, and if they did, I just missed it. But I think there's a level of shame in her, in her about going to a support group that she doesn't Absolutely. want her husband to know. And that, honestly, was just sad because like if you need help go get help and don't be ashamed of getting help but like that was a, a layer I did not get the first time I watched this movie mm -hmm. yeah and, and I'll be honest with you I think if she had told Gabriel Byrne where she was going he would have been fine with that oh, I think yeah. he would have been like good yeah I mean much like all the movies we do for romancing the pod the couple in this movie has communication issues yeah right <laughs> so at the meeting, the way that this is shot and the way that the camera is justified, first, it's looking dead on at her seated in the group. There's one empty chair in the circle and it is on her left or at least facing like from our vantage point of the camera. We're looking at her and to the left is the empty chair. Yeah. Now. Once she starts sharing about her mom and her family, the camera re-justifies and flips to see her point of view. And that chair is then on the right. Yeah. So it's almost as if the movie is telling you, yes, you should say this. Yeah. This is better for uh, you. But And it is. I mean, it is like what you need to do in that moment. She needs to like get it off yes. her chest and communicate it out and mm -hmm. all that stuff. Yeah. And it's framed with all of the faces of the people looking at her who are all compassionate and like care yeah. about her. And that so I thought that was a very poignant juxtaposition playing with that left and right. Yeah. Also, if you'll notice, Joan is not there. Uh. I didn't notice that because there are like probably 20 people in that scene. You just can't see them all. But that's an interesting fun fact that she's not there because that is like what she uses later to say, oh, I saw you here last time. That's how I know who you are. And there are a couple other things that are kind of Easter eggy that reveal that, that Joan is kind of stalking her. And, and not just in the way that the movie portrays, but even more so so this in this first meeting she's not there yeah i mean i sort of assume the whole cult from the moment the grandmother dies or you know annie's mom dies the whole yeah. cult is sort of stalking the fa all of the family members mm -hmm. i mean at one point in this movie joan stands outside peter's school and expels them which I was like, you can't do that. You're not the principal. Well, or is he an unreliable narrator? Because no one else seems to hear it. I mean, that's true, but it could be like some supernatural shit. I don't know. It could be supernatural shit. I don't know. Anyway, this is the point in the movie during this therapy group that she gives us a little bit of exposition about what 
has happened prior to the movie. She and her mom have not had a good relationship. They were estranged. Um, It sounds like from the point of her brother's death until she had Charlie. Yeah. And she does say that she had DID and dementia, which DID, correct me if I'm wrong. Dissociative identity disorder. That's the one. Very controversial diagnosis, in my opinion. Can I ask why? Because I don't know anything about it. Multiple personalities. Oh, is, is that very, what that is? We talked okay. about this. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know that those were s- synonymous. Yeah. And I, you know, there are dissociative. You can dissociate from a moment and and without having another identity. Yeah. There's also, I mean, people who go through a lot. Of, I'm not saying that there's. I'm not saying that those people are faking mentally ill. I'm saying that people who go through so much unbelievable trauma have coping skills that are not within the norm of most of people. And they have learned very intelligent ways to feel safe in control situations. And maybe that has something to play with it. I I have seen a lot of very seriously sick people, and I don't think I have seen a true case of that. Uh, So I'm very skeptical of the science behind that. And most of those big famous cases have come off as false. Oh, yeah. A A lot of big famous cases have been debunked. I would say that I still find that name applicable if it is a coping mechanism that they have created. I don't find that to... I agree with that. You're dealing with somebody who has very maladaptive coping. Yes. I think that's a great way to look at it. And I, I yeah. would be way more about that. But a lot of people just like consider like the movie Split of like, you know... Harry's here now and he's the killer and like you're like you know, like uh, I don't I don't yeah but yeah, like yeah. that's not well I don't know anything about the science behind it or anything that you just said but like in my mind that stuff doesn't really exist well movies get stuff wrong a lot yeah, yeah. a lot of people want those things to exist which I think can muddles the water very quickly well I mean and in truth I have no idea like I would trust your judgment way over mine so if you were like no it totally exists I'd be like yeah you have a master's degree in this shit yeah cool I believe you. <laughs> Well, this is also, so I think within this story, this is where your reading of the movie splits. Either you hear this exposition and are like, there is a very persistent and strong history of mental illness in this family, and that's what's happening, and we have unreliable narrators. Or everything that has been perceived as mental illness was actually tied to this invocation. And that is the supernatural reading of the movie. Because within this, they're saying uh, dissociative identity disorder and dementia, or was she possessed? The father starved himself, or was he under some sort of influence from the group? Yeah. The brother who dies, unfortunately, by suicide, claims that she was trying to put people in him. Well, if you believe the supernatural reading of the movie, she She legit was, yeah. Mm -hmm. She legit was, and that's a very, very real part of the supernatural reading of the movie. Now, also, Tony Collette's character knows about all of the delusions that they have had that could then inform her own. So like, like if you kind of look at it that way, again, you could read it either way and yeah. either way works yeah. with this scene. I think with the whole movie we'll find. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and consistent with both readings, she says that her mother was very manipulative and wanted to interfere with her ability to parent her children. Uh, so she had no contact with Peter, uh, but instead had contact with Charlie. And she even mentions that she wouldn't even let her feed Charlie. Like, that's how invested she got. We do also get a shot of a miniature 
where she's coming in with like a boob out to try and feed Charlie. Yeah. Which would not necessarily work. <laughs> well, I mean, if it's the supernatural, maybe that's the way you sprinkle it a little payment or whatever. Like something. Yeah. And Tony Collette's character, Annie, has taken on a lot of the blame and the stress onto herself without sharing it to her family because she doesn't want to burden them because she perceives herself as a burden, which again, yeah. if she had shared more with them, maybe things wouldn't have happened this way. But Well, if she had shared that she felt that way, it would have at least given them the opportunity to tell her, absolutely, you're not a burden. I mean, right. I could see Peter maybe saying that. I don't think uh, Gabrielle Bairn would, <laughs> as Mikey pronounces the name, but right. he's at least a good communicator about things he's trying to be i don't feel like anyone is communicating with him but he's leaving the space open for that in multiple occasions and i love that for him well and i think no one's going to be perfect and because he doesn't have all the information yeah he's trying to do his best at all times and he clearly loves all of them he just doesn't have the information he needs and either He's dealing with someone who is such an unreliable narrator that they now are going to cause him harm, whether intentionally or unintentionally, or he is fated to live out the supernatural yeah. that sort of has been established thing. in the film. Yeah. There you go. So we cut back to Peter's room where he's smoking a bong and he gets one of the funniest texts ever, which just says, huge party at Aaron's house tomorrow. Bring your dick. Yeah. <laughs> which is just like... No one can eat that. Bring brownies. Uh, people can eat that. <laughs> I'm 100% sure I sent a text that said almost exactly this when I was in high school. I feel like I'm going to start doing it now for like, we're going to have a crafting get together with snacks. Bring, Bring your, your dick. dick. I mean, you should always yell that. I feel like it's better if it like has nothing to do with sex or anything where sex could be involved it's more funny to me like hey ladies we're gonna get together and practice some fiber arts bring, bring your, your dick. dick like it'd be so <laughs> funny yeah all day by the way i'm gonna isolate both of us saying that and drop it into my soundboard there you go okay. <laughs> anyway uh we cut to a shot of the treehouse in the forest which i believe is actually a miniature not an actual shot we cut inside where Inside the house where Charlie is building a dead bird doll. Why would you do that? Although I did think it was interesting that like the word that was written above her bed or like uh -huh. in between her bedpost or whatever is like the necromancy word. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if like her specific type of issue that's going on inside her right now is like through that spell writing that word on the wall yeah. is manifesting in a weird sort of trying to bring that bird back to life and doesn't quite understand what she's doing necessarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, who knows? That was just the way I saw it the second time around. She manages to arrange it in a way that mirrors the arrangement of her head on the mannequin later in the film. Yeah. Now, this is the first time that we see the light sphere kind of thing that definitely yeah. signals possession or some sort of influence of some kind or schizophrenic break or yeah. schizophrenic break that would actually be a really good representation of a hallucination oh yeah shadows and lights like that interesting okay and it travels from left to right yeah and a lights on a picture of grandma so we cut to tony collette's making dinner 
Pete basically tells her like, hey, I'm going to go to this party, but I will have dinner and whatever. And she's like, well, did you ask your sister if she could go? And he's like, I don't think she wants to go. Also, she's clearly (laughs) too young. But I think this is Tony Collette trying to catch him in. This is not a school barbecue. This is a party. And that's why she shouldn't be there. And everyone kind of doubles down. I mean, I definitely think it is that. But also, of course, it's not a barbecue because he's eating at home. Of course, it's not a barbecue. Like, she knew that already if she was listening. So, yeah, I mean. I don't want to blame Tony Collette for all of this. But if she would have done a tad bit more parenting in this moment, both of her children would probably be alive at this time. I mean, she definitely was one of the factors that led to Charlie's death. But so is he. Oh, Paige, there were a lot of factors after Tony Collette says take her to the party. There are a lot of other things that he then messes up to lead us there, too. But he's also a child. Yeah, sure. He's a child, but he's also the one who's going. Like, I'm not going to place the blame on her necessarily. Her well, being no, Tony no. Collette, I'm assuming. Yeah. Charlie is to blame. Terrible thing. I was going to bring that up. Yeah. Like, there yeah. is no way. <laughs> That <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's no way that this is Charlie's fault, Mikey. One, it's if she's allergic, that allergic, she should have an EpiPen. Sure. Or that it should be in the car. Or she should yeah. check ingredients of strange food. Well, I saw this as, because I read this movie as supernatural. Same. Faded death. Yeah. I, I, I read this all as fate, where it's like, you could point fingers at any number of factors that could have prevented this. But the fact of the matter is, it was also an accident. Like, you can 2020 vision a million different things, but that's not going to change what happened. And they forecast that it's an accident because when the party scene starts, it opens on a girl chopping nuts with a knife. Mm -hmm. We then see that same knife cutting the cake and then Charlie eating cake that does not have nuts in it. So she was under the assumption that there were no nuts involved Ah. in that cake. And so she was just eating cake, which should be fine. She's eaten cake a thousand times probably. It's fine. And because there were nuts on it, uh, nuts that were on the knife, residue or whatever, it's it's bad. Also would have called an ambulance. Yes, same. Possibly unless you thought the ambulance would take longer to get to you. Okay, so, man, we're not even to that scene yet, but I feel like he doesn't call an ambulance because they're drinking at the party, party. and that is going to get the cops as well, and so he just... He just doesn't feel like he can, even though, man, that's probably the right call in that situation. But there's also a part of me that thinks like if she can comfortably sit in the car and he can just take off from there and get to the hospital, he would probably beat the ambulance. Probably. Yeah. Regardless, I think we also have to look at this through the lens of grief because that's what this movie is about. And any time any tragedy happens to people, everyone's going to try and relitigate what got them there. And it doesn't change the fact that it happened. Yeah. My brother died in a very similar way. Like we hit a phone pole with our car or truck. Mm. So like he didn't hit it with his body, but like it's very similar. Right. right? And I could and used to go back and sort of try to like place blame and try to dissect all the decisions that led up to that event. And like I, I think that just made me realize that sort of everyone has a little bit of blame and that isn't important really because Mm -hmm. everyone's actions sort of play in everyone else's actions in their like community or family or whatever. And it's just like, it's not important whose fault it was in, in an accident situation like this is right. If someone murders somebody that is very different, right? But like in an accident like this or that we went through with my brother, like, I mean, I know a lot of the family members personally felt responsible and should not have. And like, you know, stuff like that. Well, and it could have gone the other way. Like 
very easily the accident could not have happened and everyone could have made the same decisions and it might mm-hmm. not have been the accident. And if you looked at every single thing you did throughout your day, there's a million different things exactly. that could play into anything. And at any given moment, yeah. you could die. And everyone's going to try and look back at why. But it doesn't necessarily matter because the the real problem is that you're missing somebody. And I think that's kind of more what this movie tries to get at. And I do kind of appreciate that. Well, I think so, too. And so, like, I felt like me trying to figure out who was ultimately at fault with that. And honestly, it was me going through this like thought exercise of is it all my fault, really? Because I also felt like I was to blame for it. Like that to me, I realized later through therapy was just a form of me trying to get control of something that I had no control of and never had any control of. Right. Yeah. And I do feel like that is very much the portrayal in this movie. And I think that that is why Annie or Tony Collette's character is making miniatures of the trauma in her life because mm-hmm. she wants to feel like a level of control, like you, you over, control it. over it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If she's the one creating that miniature art. So like, I really liked that layer of it. Although I didn't see that at all the first time. Well, and then you're right. And then like, I make a lot of jokes, but like what really breaks my heart in this movie is watching Tony Collette blame him and then yeah. him blame her. And like, I'm like, yeah. y'all need to sit down and have a conversation about this. And, but like, also you're the parent. And like, so you have a more responsibility to deal with your feelings about this yes. than, than your teenage son. Yeah. But like, if you cannot blame your teenage son on an accident here, well, and, and here's what's tricky is that like even in that moment, which we haven't gotten to that yet, it's a few scenes from now, but like even in that moment, she knows it's wrong to blame him and feels bad for doing it because she even says, I know it was an accident. I know there's nothing you could do. I know you miss her. I know you're sad, but that doesn't take my pain away. And it's like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the, right. You're almost there. Well, then she's like, you should apologize. And I'm like, Jesus, lady, yeah. he's like he's done. He's, he's like, fucking traumatized. Like yeah. that kid is destroyed after it happened. Like, holy shit. C- could you imagine how bad you would feel even knowing it was an accident? Yes. Yeah. Especially if your mom's acting like that. And honestly, Ugh. in this situation, if if I was their friend, like if I was Gabrielle yeah. Burns' friend mm-hmm. or his friend, I'd be like, come stay with me for a couple weeks. If I was his friend at school, I'd be like, mm-hmm. just come over to my house, get away from everything. Yeah. And if Gabrielle Burns was dealing with all this, because he almost gets there. He does, he does. When he has that phone call. But I would have been like, I would have taken him and left and like gone on a vacation or, yeah. or checked into a hotel and just been like, we need space. Yeah. We all need, we all just need a lot of space right now. And yeah. like, there's nothing wrong with that and it's yeah I mean, it, you cannot just collide and hurt other people dealing with your grief well and that's like there, there's a scene a very very brief one a little bit later where you see him get home from school and like brace himself to go into the house yeah and then you see her notice that he's home from school and then leave because she can't even stand to be around him like yeah. that it's that because everyone's just kind of tiptoeing around each other because of the grief so but the party hasn't even happened yet. Yeah, we should back up and sort of explain what happens <laughs> yeah. through all of this. Back uh, it so, up. Yeah. Charlie walks out to the woods with her dead bird head uh, in <laughs> socks yeah. in the mud and sees what looks to be grandma with flames, which maybe, who knows? But Tony Collette drags her inside, is basically like, you're going to a party with your brother. She doesn't want to go. No. <laughs> she doesn't. I mean, she even says like, why? Why am I going? <laughs> Honestly, the brother even not fighting this, even if it was a barbecue, I'd have been like, hell no. Yeah, I mean, I would too. This sounds terrible. Everyone's motivations for what they're doing, I think, come from a place of positivity. 
and it just turns out bad where like I'm pretty sure that Tony Collette is a doing it because she thinks it'll make him make safer choices because he knows she's there but also B, maybe she'll find someone to talk to and have friends because it seems like that's not a thing that she's got. And then on his side, he's like, well, I, I guess I'll take her so that she doesn't feel bad and it'll be fine. Because he doesn't immediately, di- he like walks away from her for a second at the party, but he's not an asshole to her. And as soon as she needs help, he's immediately like, we're out. I mean, that is true, but he does ditch her at the party fully. Like he sees a hot girl, sure. walks over to her and goes, wanna get hot? And then they bone yeah. out and get high. You cannot yeah. mulligan 4D chess parent by like, if she if he takes her sister, he won't do anything dumb. 16 to 17-year-old men to the, about the age of 34 will always do <laughs> dumb things. I'm going to say 38. Damn. Yeah, absolutely. That is true. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not blaming her. I'm just saying like that is such a wild parenting take of like, be honest. I think there's alcohol at the thing. I don't think you should go. Or I don't think you should take your sister. Or if there is drinking there and you drink, you're going to be in so much trouble. Either way, it sh- it just shows in the movie that they are not communicating the way they should be. No. Yeah. Well, I also think Charlie's her set of eyes at the party where she's like, where you're going to lie, she's going to be there, and then she's going to tell me the truth of what happened. Oh, so you're saying he killed yeah. his sister so she wouldn't tell the mom about him smoking she pot was with the, the girl in class. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm saying the sister was the, was the spy, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I think he's old enough to drive, so he's like 16, and she's 13, so they're only like three years apart. Yeah, I mean, at most, he's probably 17, like 16 or 17. Yeah. Yeah. My sister and I are only two years apart. But I could totally see my mom being like, you're ha- you have to take your sister. Just to like, for any number of reasons of like, first, then there's two of you. Second, then like any number of things. But again, we can't relitigate the blame on this. Right. It, there are a lot of moving parts. Anyway, he drives her to the party. And as they drive past, there's a symbol on the post. It's the same symbol as the necklace and the one that's on the book later. Yeah. They get to the house party. There are... A huge pile of walnuts that somebody is chopping with that knife that will then later be used to cut the cake. Yeah. Meanwhile, back at the house, Tony Collette is making miniatures. And at this point, I know we've spent a lot of time talking about this on this episode because we went into detail, but also we took a break for a little bit. It was at this point that I was like, this movie flies because like I remembered it being paced so much slower than it is. And at this point in the movie, we are about a third of the way through. It's like act end of act one and it feels like we've only been watching it for like 15 minutes it's wild it really is paced very well although we are currently two hours into this recording so this yeah. episode is not paced very <laughs> we're not paced well ari aster's paced great i'll edit it so it's paced well but i mean i did have to take like a 20 minute break because i had like a family thing happened so yeah that's on right. me no, we're the Avatar 2 of podcasts. Oh, my God. Somebody invited me to go see Avatar 2 and like invited a group of us to go. And literally everyone else in the group was like, I would rather take a belt sander to my eyes. <laughs> it was really hilarious <laughs> how quickly someone's friendly suggestion got shut down in that group. Uh, it was great. The best thing I saw when I saw Avatar 2 in IMAX in 3D, Paige was the trailer for Oppenheimer. Can't wait for that movie. <laughs> oh, I do want to see that. On IMAX. Avatar 2 is fine, and it looks fine. It is what it is. Anyway, he goes into smoke with a couple friends from school. He tells her to stay and get some chocolate cake because he's like, oh, they're handing it out to everyone. She's like, not everyone. He's like, just go get some chocolate cake. 
I'll be back in a minute. So they're smoking the bong. She's eating the chocolate cake and something tastes off to her. I'm guessing her mouth probably started tingling. Yeah. And she probably calls her mom, but doesn't get through because his phone rings and it's her his mom calling. Yeah. Charlie, meanwhile, is sitting at the party making one of her dolls and she's wheezing. So she goes in to find Peter and she's like, it's hard to breathe. I think my throat's getting bigger. And he instantly is like, I'm taking you to the hot, like right now. No hesitation. Yeah. I mean, I really do feel like he loves his little sister. Like he was like, oh shit, this is like, yeah. we got to go now. And he, I mean, he has been smoking and he does then go get behind the wheel of a car. But like, well, actually we see him load. We never see him get to smoke. It. Oh, okay. Like she okay, okay. gets there before he actually smokes it. That makes me feel better about it. Honestly, the supernatural interpretation is they curse that pole. And it was all planned out or whatever. Well, yes, yeah, that is exactly. the supernatural. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That it is fate. Yeah, it is supernatural, tragic fate. I do also think if we're talking about like, why didn't he call an ambulance? I think a 16, 17 year old, maybe not thinking clearly B, maybe he did smoke it off screen and we didn't see it. And that's why he's not thinking. Sure. Regardless. He he pops her in the car and he speeds away and he literally says, I'm almost to the hospital. Hang on for just a a second. And if she had not hit the pole, he, she probably would have made it and probably would have lived. But when you're choking like that, it can get really, really hot and you feel like you can't get enough air. So she sticks her head out the window to try and cool off and get more air And she would have been fine, except that there was a dead deer in the road. Yeah. So he swerves to avoid the dead deer, smacks her head on the pole, and she is instantly decapitated. And they show it. It's terrible. And they show it. It's brutal. (laughs) Oh, the, the part that made me cry that I didn't remember was that, like, he stops the car and he just sits there stunned for a second and just goes, are you okay? Yeah. And then there's no answer. And he just says, okay, and then drives away. Yeah, Because like, what do you do with that? There's nothing you can do. You can't fix it at that point. Speaking from personal experience, you do almost exactly this thing. Like this is one of the things that was like so true to what my experience of this event was like that it was like, Oh shit Do I know Ari Aster? Does he know me? Does he hate me personally? (laughs) (laughs) Because like I was in the bed of the truck and I was thrown into the street and then I ran back to the car and pulled my brother out and realized that he was sort of gone. And you just like yeah. sort of don't know what to do in that moment. And you're like in such heavy denial. And like, that is clearly where he is yeah. all through the night until like, the next morning when he is still clearly oh, awake. Yes. The car is now back at the house because he's in bed. And you just hear Tony Collette say she's going to go to the store, walk to the car and just start screaming. And yeah. it all that becomes scream. real in that moment to him. Like Ugh. all of that, like hardcore denial of the truth just felt so real to me from my experience. It was nuts. A lot of people's criticisms of this movie, I think are like, why would you just drive back home with a dead body in your car? No, and, like, I totally understand. People panic all the time. Yeah. Like it's hard to explain, but like that is super like that made sense to me on some level. It might maybe a little bit extreme, but it made sense. In fun facts, this is a real story that happened. Okay. Yeah. That that is basically depicted in this movie. We'll cover it then, but Cool. Okay. That scream of hers is otherworldly. And this is where we begin the contrast <sighs> between Grandma's funeral and Charlie's. Yeah. Because this is where she is going through just horrific grief of wanting to die because it hurts so much. 
We even see them kind of go through the funeral. She doesn't even want to participate, like this whole thing. Oh, and she's like, she can't even stand as they're like putting the casket yeah. on the ground. It's like a really cool shot, honestly, because the yeah. camera is locked to the height or altitude, if you will, of the casket. Yep. So they're lowering at the same time. And it time, lowers and through the ground. Yeah, yep. it's such a cool shot. But she can't even stand. Like it is so heartbreaking. Yeah. And it is just such a juxtaposition of, how Ugh. it was to lose her mother slowly over the course of 10 years. And I mean, I'm not saying there wouldn't be weird grief there, but like, especially like, I think the hard thing for me and her Ooh, losing a child grief is, I don't think that's comparable almost. You a know? kid died when I was in high school and this is what his mom looked like at the funeral. And it yeah. broke me like, like I was sad going into the funeral, but watching his mom, oof, oh man burned into my brain parents should outlive their kids yeah yeah i do think if i was in any situation with her mother's grief i would probably be grieving the like potential of a good relationship that is just no longer available because your mother has passed yeah like and that would be sad to me right because they were estranged for a number of years and all that stuff so like there right. is like complex grief there but i think the the fact that she had years to say goodbye and then with her daughter she never expected to lose her daughter and that was yep. like, it's just fucking it's so brutal man when she's like on the floor with with Papa Byrne and she's like begging for death. It's so heartbreaking. I was like crying my eyes out at that moment. Yeah. So we cut to, <sighs> we we do see Gabriel Byrne go through her sketchbook and notice where the empty pages start, which also so sad. Yeah. I know her outwork was so ugly. <laughs> I do think it's cool that they use that notebook later in the, in the movie. Like that's the notebook they have to burn and all that stuff. And like, because the other right. pictures are filled in with what look like terrible sketches of Gilbert Gottfried, but they tell you <laughs> yeah. is Peter. So we see that Tony Collette is sleeping up in the treehouse uh, with space heaters, which is where we get the red glow from the treehouse that will kind of come back a couple times in the movie. Yeah. We cut to Peter in class, not listening and a really cool shot of like, he looks up facing forward and we get his point of view and we see the rear view mirror. Yeah. With her headless body in the back. God. Oh. I mean, but that's like a that's like a tie-in to the actual accident scene where he tries to look and doesn't. He can't even face yeah. it, right? It's <sighs> right. So he's in class. He's clearly not doing great. He ends up smoking with his friends under the bleachers and has a panic attack where he feels like he can't breathe, which honestly I think is just paranoia from the weed, but that's how it's showing up. And I don't think that he necessarily has anaphylaxis, but I think the panic attack is showing up in that way because he is kind of reliving that night where it's now him who can't breathe. I think that that's definitely one reading of that. I think that it's also could be like a supernatural. It's also a common symptom. Oh, it's a common symptom of PTSD as well. Oh, okay. I, I didn't know that. So that's like, yeah, perfect. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, not perfect, but I'm glad that you know that kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, but this is the scene where he then comes home and has to brace himself to go inside the house. And she's waiting in the car and drives away as soon as he gets there. But she tries to go to the same kind of grief group again, but can't bring herself to go inside. And this is where Joan intercepts her and is basically like, my son and my grandson are dead. They drowned. He was seven. It's been a few months. I think this is completely fake. Oh, I thought it was completely fake as well. Or if it wasn't yeah. fake, they died doing culty shit. Or she killed them. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it could be. Yeah, it could be. But she basically is like, I'm going to give you my information so you can contact me. This is the one place where there's not a left hand nod that I wish there was. I wish she would have written it left-handed. Yeah. She writes it right-handed. Yeah. But but the first time you watch this, you're like, oh my God, this woman is like doing such this amazingly sweet thing. 
of like providing the support and making sure she get it. She's getting the help. And then the second time you watch it, you're like, don't talk to her. She's bad. You don't want to talk to Joe. Oh, I was suspicious of her instantly, even the first time. I don't know what it was about her that I was like, Mm-mm. I know what it was because I saw her beat all those women in uh, the freaking Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> <laughs> that is the same actress. You're right. And she's great. She's good in this too, man. She's great. I think because I hadn't seen her in the first group uh, and... I, and maybe it wasn't in this scene that I immediately suspected her, but when she was like, oh, my mom used to embroider things just like that. Uh, and that's like the first time she goes over to her house, like before the seance, everything. That was my red flag of like, she knew the mom. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah. They uh, telegraphed that completely. Well, also, knitted doormats are not a common thing. No, they're not. Embroidered yeah. doormats? No, yeah. they're not. <laughs> and to be honest with you, I don't think they're doormats. I think they're pillows for kneeling. Oh. Like prayer rugs, maybe? Yeah, 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 oh, yeah, yeah. Pillows for kneeling. I didn't know you could buy those. Uh, Mikey, you can and you <laughs> should. Yeah, they sell them in gardening stores if you want to get real cheap. <laughs> get a nice one. Get like a lily pad. Girl, we need to take a time out. You need to go out to my shed. There's some gardening <laughs> pillows out there. <laughs> yeah, it's the pillow that says "Turn your green thumb brown." Let's do this. Oh, oh no! <laughs> oh, I don't like it. <sighs> Honestly, that was the reaction I was hoping for. This is Mikey from Horror Virgin. I practiced this ad for Factor in my car today. <laughs> Can you show us what you practiced? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mikey from Horror Virgin here. <laughs> Talk about Factor. <laughs> Nailed it. I have used Factor on and off the last couple of years, uh, especially since 2020. My work is very busy. I have a very busy day job. He does. I have a very busy hobby uh -huh. slash second job called podcasting. <laughs> yeah, it's so much work for you. <laughs> Eating healthy is hard. Cooking, I'm single. <laughs> Cooking single is hard. And I've loved Factor. Other people, they ship you ingredients. You have to cook them. It takes a long time. Factor, they ship you fresh, never frozen meals. And it always only takes two minutes, which is like my favorite thing. I never have to think about how long it has to go in the microwave. It's two minutes. That's what my dating profile says. Always two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's helped me eat healthier, though. They have a bunch of like dietary options, like low calorie or protein or keto. Is it keto? Keto. Keto. Mikey, you said it wrong so many times, I'm not sure if I remember how to say it right. It's keto, right? Keto. No, it's keto. It's keto. But anyway, Factor's amazing. So just head to factormeals.com slash horrorvirgin50 and use code horrorvirgin50 to get how much percentage off, Mikey? Were you paying attention? 50. Damn. 50% off. Literally half off. That's code horrorvirgin50 at factormeals.com slash Horror Virgin 50 to get 50% off. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Back at the house after group, Tony Collette is going to sleep in the treehouse again. And Gabriel Byrne is worried about her because it is very cold. Yeah. But I also I'm like, dude, don't you get why she's sleeping out there? Like, I understand. Anyway, she wakes up in the treehouse because she hears the tongue clicks, which there is a part of me that's like, if somebody is really good at editing, edit together all the tongue clicks from this movie, but add an oak. Oh, after each one <laughs> hysterical <laughs> oh that'd be great i love it yeah so she hears the tongue pop 
and it looks like there's someone in the corner because in there there is in the camera but in the story technically no one yeah we cut to a shot of their mailbox where they get a like flyer for a medium named suzanne barlow we will never see her go to that medium but that's the same medium that joan references yeah and i'm like 90 percent sure it's just one of the cult members yeah so andy is making a miniature of charlie's room and adds the writing on the wall yeah the necromancy writing and she has a note that says call gallery about extending as she kind of gets distracted looking at it she knocks over paint and Accidentally spills it on the note from Joan, decides to go to Joan's house. This is where she sees the doormat that says Joni. And this is where she says, my mother used to make doormats, welcome mats just like that. And Joan just goes, oh, interesting. They sit at the table. <laughs> I mean, in the, when I first saw this movie, I was like, oh, yeah, I guess that is interesting because I don't know if this is like a common doormat in like Colorado or wherever this is. I've never yeah. seen or heard of that in my life. I would be like, mm -mm. my mom made those. I'm out of here. <laughs> I hate my mom. <laughs> I'm triggered. I'm triggered. <laughs> in the house, the way that the camera is justified because they are shot from the rear, Joan is on her right-hand side and also on the right-hand side of our screen. Yeah. That will change later very specifically well i think it probably changes when you're supposed to realize that joan is bad uh before it's actually before it's your precursor hint that she yeah, is yeah, bad. yeah okay that that makes sense because they're showing her on the right hand side because they want you to think she's good and Correct. that is the misdirect yes mm -hmm. uh this is also where we first get the story about her sleepwalking and almost burning charlie and peter alive yeah this is the time she tells a story that she definitely was sleepwalking but either way she was about to commit a double uh, murder or suicide like or or dissociating something yeah some i honestly thought she may have been sleepwalking like i don't know but like she was about to kill everyone in the house with paint thinner and l matches yeah i mean we we see her sleepwalk in this movie or i would argue dissociate or sure. have a delusion She's an unreliable narrator. Yeah, that's fair. Because after the seance, she does sleepwalk quite a bit. Quite a bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or is she possessed? Anyway, so she then says she's like, it was impossible to convince them it was sleepwalking. And it became like a point of contention, which again, outside looking in, if I found Jake dousing the cat in paint thinner, <laughs> it would be a point of contention. Yeah. Whether he had a lighter or matches or not, I would have a in few general, questions. Yeah. I'd be like, you don't get to pour paint thinner on the cat. I, I feel like I shouldn't <laughs> tell you this rule, but you don't. That's something we do as a family. Yes. Also, if I was the son. Because how, how long ago did she pour the paint thinner on the son? They were babies because they were sharing a room. Yeah, and, they were Which, again, they are, they are only maybe three years apart max, which suggests that he was probably three and she was probably an infant, enough for him to possibly remember vaguely uh but not enough for charlie to remember and she does say that she had doused herself in paint thinner so it was it would have been to get rid of all three of them yeah it was everyone in the room it was family annihilator which is yeah. rare for women but yeah i don't know if i could come back from that in a relationship oh, oh I no i mean even if it was my mother no I don't think I could get back from that. No, <laughs> no. Like if I was married to someone and I woke up and the two kids were covered and she was almost killing him and she's like, I'm sleepwalking. I know myself. 
I don't know if I can ever believe them. And I think that it's not fair to me not to trust someone for the rest of their lives and our lives together. So maybe it is time to part ways. I love how you phrase that in a way that made it seem like you're a good guy for breaking up with them. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I think they deserve to have a partner that trusts them. <laughs> I've been really practicing mindfulness and talking. I love it, Mikey. It's so well done. From a family safety standpoint, I I would take the kids and run and try to take as much custody as I could. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Now, here's what I will say. I think for me, it depends on when I walk in on it. If you walk in on it at all, you're either stopping it immediately or an accessory. (laughs) I mean, okay. What point is okay? The point where she's pouring paint thinner on a baby? Hear me out. When people sleepwalk, like if this is truly sleepwalking, she is not going to be fully conscious and I would be trying to wake her up. At that point, I know that either it's a dissociative episode, you are sleepwalking, you are not yourself, something is medically wrong with you. If I walk in on it and you've lit the match and you're like, I was sleepwalking. (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah. If you voluntarily say you're sleepwalking, you're not sleepwalking. Even if they're sleepwalking, I'd be like, yeah, but I don't know if I like this anymore so here's the thing there's a very famous comedian who has a severe sonambular disorder caused him to run out of mike berbiglia to run out of a second story window while sleepwalking because his body does not trigger the ability to wake him up so something like this probably not exactly like this but something dangerous could happen while he's asleep it is completely beyond his control that is the thing that exists now now that they know that. We chain her in a room every night like a werewolf. He sleeps in a pod, but also they like, he has medications he takes, and then they also literally zip him into a pod to sleep so he can't move or go anywhere. So like, if I catch them and they are clearly sleepwalking, then we go to the hospital and figure something out. If they're awake and are just like, I swear I was sleepwalking. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> but that's mainly because I've I've met Mike Perbigley. Yeah. Anyway, we cut back to the house and Peter gets home and Gabriel Byrne is like, sign up for your SAT course. And he goes upstairs to check on Annie. And this is where she's painting the miniature of the accident. And I agree with you. I wouldn't want Peter to see it either, Mikey. Yeah. He's like, Annie, are you okay? Are you okay, Annie? (laughs) (laughs) If I was him, I'd be like, maybe we need to all go somewhere or take some space or go to family therapy or anything, everything but what we're doing now. Right. Mm -hmm. Literally, at this point, try anything. I think it's also a timing thing because like this movie posits that Charlie dies within two weeks of the grandmother dying. Yeah, it's very quick. It's very quick. And then the rest of the events of this film are literally only another week to two weeks after Charlie dies. Yeah. So like this entire movie takes place in a month. And with everything the family is handling during that time, I also fully understand them not reaching out in that way because of the overwhelming nature of their situation. Like the night my parents separated was a very dramatic. Mm -hmm. My mom kicked my dad out. It was very bad. He did a lot of bad stuff. Yada, yada, yada. I have a similar experience when I was a kid. My mom literally, when my dad was at work, was like, get in the car. We're going to North Carolina. So yeah, I mean, (laughs) like, yeah, I've been there. But I, my mom called me to tell me what she was doing because it was New Year's Eve. And so I just like asked my friend Eddie and his parents. I was like, 
can I stay for a couple of more days? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. you know, it's like, I need to process. I need, I need my own space for this. Yeah. You know, it's okay to leave your house if it's really bad. Yeah. Anyway, Gabriel Byrne forces them all go all to go downstairs to the worst dinner imaginable. <laughs> because, like, this is the most uncomfortable scene in the movie where this it's is where. so good, though, man. Oh. This is why she should have gotten the Oscar. I, well, Ugh. this and there's, I mean, honestly, this scene obviously is the standout scene. But her talking in the therapy group she crushes yes. the emotional yeah. weight of that. She's just so good throughout this entire fucking movie. It's a shame she didn't win. I don't know who won Best Actress, yeah. and I'm sure they did great. But man, Tony Collette is amazing. No, I think I mean this is up there with Psycho in the way of it performs and written. Yes. And like I think this is a very good horror movie. There's also another scene in this movie slightly later where she's like watching Gabriel Byrne burn to death, and then just snaps. To being possessed. Yeah. And I was just like, Ugh. oh, yeah. And she's like got tears in her eyes. And it's like in this yeah. insane, like, I thought I, it was going to be me that dies. Silent don't take scream. Him. Please don't. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And just like in literally, like a snap of a finger goes to possessed, no longer feeling any sort of grief face. And no longer present. So just haunting. Absent. Yes. Yeah. Gone behind the eyes. Yeah. I just looked up who won the Oscar that year. Who won? And it was Frances McDormand for Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, which is okay, so good. Fine, she's but so still. good. Oh, that's so, like, a great movie. I mean, like, I sort of get why Tony Collette didn't okay, get it. But man. But here's the thing. But that movie's vanished and this movie yes. has. Yes. But that's why I think Todd's idea about doing Oscars five years from the year it's done is a better oh, idea. I should that say that that is not idea. my idea. I got it from Jack O'Brien, who was on um, Daily Zeitgeist, and he used to be the guy who owned and operated Cracked years back. He's been talking about that for like 10 years. I just stole it from him. I See, I think we should give Oscars genre-specific, like best actress in a horror movie, best actress in a rom-com, whatever, sure. and divide it up so that we're not all going for this one thing, because I think different genres require different things from different performances and different skill sets even yeah and different skill sets i'm with more the five years later idea so you could see what stood the test of time yeah like what like shawshank and, and all that stuff oh, yeah. yeah anyway back to this movie so during the dinner this is where she has the whole thing of like look i know it's not your fault i know you're upset too i know it was an accident but like i can't blame you for it but you never said sorry it's this whole thing and they end up Getting into a literal shouting match. I mean, it really isn't a shouting match. Like, Tony Collette is just yelling uh, at Peter. Yeah. And it really is like, everyone knows the mom wants to say something. And yeah. so, like, Peter starts, like, poking the bear, if you will, if you're familiar with that expression, right? Yeah, yeah, And yeah. Mm -hmm. it eventually explodes into Tony Collette just ripping into him and, like, sort of blaming him for it and then sort of taking it back a little bit through the if I could take away that pain I would because that's I, I want to shield you from that as well it's it is a very like sweet but insanely like hurtful, hurtful. like <laughs> yes. expression of this is your fault I want to blame you but I can't <laughs> exactly and I love when she's done yelling at him everyone sort of like takes a beat and then he just goes why was she there mom yeah. And then you see her face and her fa like she is expressing all at once 
like four different emotions. One of which is like, yeah, fuck mm-hmm. you. How dare you? Secondly, listen up, you little bitch. Thirdly, that hurts me so bad because I know it's partially true. And like, it's just yep. so it like it's insane. She's so good. I, I was so impressed with her in this. Yeah. And, and essentially, Gabriel Byrne ends it, which is like he's like, everyone stops yes. right now. Yeah. Both of you stop. And she just goes, fine. And you're just like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we cut to. She's working on her miniatures and has to go get art supplies. So she goes to the art store where she runs into Joan. And this is where Joan is like, I had a seance. I got to talk to my grandson. It helped so much. Now, if you look really closely. Which I would be like, cool. Get the fuck away from me. I'm so glad you did that. I won't be. I won't be doing that. (laughs) Yeah. If you look at the back of her car where she's loaded the art supplies, you see the chalkboard and chalk. Oh, so nice. it wasn't okay. an item connected yeah. to her grandson. She literally bought it at the store. Now, from a props perspective, they had to put a magnet in the chalk. Oh, yeah, naturally. Yeah, of course. have it right on its own. Yeah. And apparently it was really, really difficult to do, but it was the same way that they did it in Matilda. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So she talks her into going to her apartment where they have a seance where she moves a glass and then gets it to write on the chalkboard. And it definitely feels like there's a presence there. And Tony Collette is very affected by it, but also very scared and uncomfortable. Yeah. And tries to leave. Uh, and as she does, Joan is like, hey, here's a piece of paper in a language you don't understand. Say all of this while everyone's in the house. You can do the same. Right. We sort of talked about this before, but if someone hands you a paper that's in a different language, I'm not saying what's on that because, A, I don't want to offend anybody. <laughs> I mean, even if right. I'm not assuming it's supernatural, I might be saying some, like, terrible well, shit in a different language. She, you know what I'm saying? Like, she added context and was like, if you want to see your dead daughter, say this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Send this in a different language. I'd be like. Even still. But what if that, like, sentence in another language was like, Hitler did nothing wrong and you don't know that. And, like. You don't know that. Yeah. I mean, I do know that. Careful. Hitler Ca- did a lot of stuff wrong. Whew, good. I was I, I got for a second <laughs> yeah at minimum you don't know which spirit you're going to talk to so like that's something to consider as well yeah don't call out to them but also this is the scene where she sits on the left yes and and now granted the camera is justified facing them so to us it looks like the right but for her in the scene for annie in the scene it is on her left okay now as she leaves the house and is like clutching the paper it looks like she's going to leave and then joan pops in and we see her reflection in a mirror on the left yeah telling her you didn't kill her as she leaves she literally says you didn't kill her annie she isn't gone yeah which she isn't gone which by the way we also know part of that is because they marked that poll so if you have a supernatural reading of this movie they killed her yeah if you have a a unreliable narrator version we can't trust any of this so we cut to annie (laughs) tossing and turning that night hang on i i have to point this out because in my notes it goes from you didn't kill her annie she isn't gone to holy suck not fuck the tongue pop okay the way home fuck so that must mean (laughs) (laughs) that a i can't type for shit and when she was driving home, this is the scene where Tony she Collette, hears it. She hears the click from the back seat. That scared the shit out of me, apparently, again. Yeah. She also, okay, so she hears the, the tongue pop. Then we cut to her in bed. Yeah. But we see her bedroom through another room. And I'm pretty sure that is a miniature. It would have to be. Yeah. So, like, because there'd be a wall there. Yeah. I keep trying to, like, spot it in the movie, but I'm pretty sure it's a miniature. Um, she's tossing and turning, wakes up, and there's ants all over her bed. 
There's ants all over the window. Yeah. She tracks them down the hall to Peter's room where he's covered in ants. We see her have a silent scream and Peter wakes up to her standing in his room and he's like, you're sleepwalking. And she's like, I, I'm sorry, I'm not. Is Charlie here? And he's like, what are you? She is dead. Like, what are you doing? And he's like, why are you scared of me? And it just comes out of her. I never wanted to be your mother. I mean, she does try to explain it. And what I feel is a very poor way because she's like more or less says, I tried to get rid of you many ways. None of that worked. And I'm so glad it didn't. I'm so glad it didn't work. Right. Right. I feel like you're burying the lead. I feel like you need to start with. I'm so glad you're here. And my son, I love you very much. But here's the thing. None of this is happening. This is a dream. That, okay. Yeah. Okay. That is true. That's so fair. he never he never hears it. This is her talking to her. Yeah. This is sense. her grappling with the fact that she has lost a child grappling with the fact that she may have had some trouble parenting the past, grappling yeah. with the fact that maybe she did not naturally want to be a parent and did feel pressured into it, which, by the way, lots of people do, yeah. and is struggling with it. This is her grappling with the fact that she doesn't probably feel loving to him right now because he accidentally was responsible for her daughter's death, at least partially. So yeah. I think this is her. Oh, I don't think anybody. I mean, partially, he was driving, like not not blame wise, but, but involved. In the road. That's an accident. Like that's sure. No one is responsible. It's like someone has someone has to sit everyone down and be like, "This was an accident," and you can go <laughs> back and change a million variables, but you can't. And hindsight bias is 100% and it is an accident. Yeah. For sure. But this is her having a conversation with herself. Yeah. Yeah. This is her blaming herself. Yes. Yeah, 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 not, yeah. Not that that's real, but that's what she is telling herself. Or that it's right to do that. But that is what is happening. Yeah. Right. Because as she's having this conversation, they are then drenched in paint thinner, which yeah. she did not do. And it like happens in between cuts. So like every time one yes. of them has a line of dialogue, it shows them on screen. That's very common. People are used to that. In one cut, they're both dry. Right. And then it cuts to, I think, him first. And he is like wet. It looks like they just dumped water on them. And then it cuts when he's done delivering his line back to Tony Collette and she's drenched. And then you hear a match as she's delivering her next line. And you just see it off screen. Yeah. yeah like, you just see the light. Yeah. And then you see her silently scream as they both burn to death, essentially. I yeah. do like that they show that she didn't light the match, that someone else lit right. the match. And to yep. me, that was her grandmother. If we're following like the metaphor here, mm. the grandmother lit the match and then her and her family are going to play out whatever the curse is. If you're believing not curse, but whatever they're doing in the supernatural thing of it or just their mental unwellness. I think from the mental unwellness standpoint, this is her questioning if she was sleepwalking the first time or if she truly is in her mind, yeah. a terrible mother who is unfit. I think this is her questioning that and it's a big like it's a weight on her that she cannot articulate well but she immediately snaps awake we find out she was sleepwalking yeah and she goes and wakes Peter up and then wakes Gabriel Byrne up and she's like we're having a seance everybody's having a seance yeah so they go downstairs she had done it 20 minutes before and was able to talk to Charlie through her sketchbook or she thought it was Charlie. I mean, she does say it was Charlie, but I don't think it necessarily was Charlie. Yeah. Um, but so she starts everything up again and the glass moves very definitively. Something crashes in the house. 
Peter, looking over his left shoulder, yes. can feel things around him. He literally says, why does it feel like the air is flexing? And I really sort of yes. liked that explanation for like tension in the air that you can feel, like in like awkward yeah. or, you know, tense situations. Right. And she basically is like trying to get her to draw in the sketchbook and Gabriel Byrne puts a stop to it. Yeah. And he's like, no. Um. So... Annie, at this point, the the candle like flames up, then flames down, and she is now possessed. Oh, yeah. You see it happen to her. Yeah. She's kind of growling. She's talking in a child voice that is maybe supposed to be Charlie, but doesn't sound like Charlie. Okay. I think this is interesting, Paige. You think it's child Peter? No, although that it could oh. be. Although I didn't think that, yeah. but it could be. I thought it was just Payman trying to dial in charlie's voice yes and, and do doesn't do it. exactly know it, what it sounds like yeah that was my reading of it right because it does sound childlike and honestly a lot like charlie but not exactly charlie right well because charlie is kind of low affect yeah and this was very bright and child like typical child yeah but they throw water on her she wakes up <laughs> i do love to break this like possession <laughs> all you have to do is treat them like you know someone who like said something shitty on a first date and you throw your drink in their face right Look, when in doubt throw your throw water on somebody yeah it's it's my first step to anything unless she might be secretly a mermaid well then her legs would turn to mermaid legs those are called fins but then yeah. she'd be stuck on land and that could really hurt her but that's like the worst case scenario yes every situation throw water on someone they're on fire they don't have a head. They're sad. Sure. That's your eyes throwing <laughs> water on you when you cry. Damn. Mm -hmm. Paige brought around to something like true. I wasn't expecting that. Anyway, we're almost <laughs> at three hours. I know. We got to move. Although I knew this was going to be a long episode. You love Ari Aster and this. We have a lot to I talk do. about with, uh, you know, getting your interpretation to the movie. So, yeah, everyone's. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we do see the miniature of the car and the accident. And on the wall behind it, that's where we see. And, and I am probably mispronouncing this liftoach pandemonium yeah. but basically open pandemonium we cut to peter who can't sleep he goes to class the next day we see one of those little light orbs kind of a light past him yeah and then he turns to the reflection on his left but his reflection is just straight up smiling back at him and he is not smiling at the reflection yeah he goes to the bathroom we cut to, uh, he calls his dad and is just like, I'm freaking the fuck out. And he's like, I'm bringing him home. But like, you, whatever you did last night is not happening again. We are not doing this. Yeah. Meanwhile, someone calls Annie from the gallery, uh, which by the way, this is the voice of Ari Aster. Really? Is the voicemail from the gallery. Okay, <laughs> yeah. that's awesome. Uh, but they're basically like, hey, if you need to postpone, we totally understand. You've lost two family <laughs> members in like two weeks. So, yeah. hey. But she gets upset and snaps the chair she's working on. So she ends up destroying almost all of her miniatures. I mean, she destroys everything in that room. Well, if you're going to build miniatures, if you can't act like Godzilla, what is the point? <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I definitely would do that, though, Mikey. I mean, or you could go the Jackass 4 route where you paint someone's penis to look like Godzilla and then let that destroy a city. Mm. I'm still glad I've never watched any one of those movies based on what Dude, you just said. 4 is so fun. Anyway, but so Peter's head in miniature has been removed. 
Uh, meanwhile, Gabriel Byrne goes to sleep on the couch downstairs and takes a couple pills. Tony Collette sits in the bedroom and she hears what sounds like writing or drawing and follows the noise down the hall to Charlie's room where the sketchbook is open and they keep drawing pictures of Peter with X's over his eyes. Yeah. Meanwhile, in Peter's room, he hears the tongue pop. He looks up. He sees Charlie in the corner. She tilts her head down. It seemingly falls off her head and rolls towards his bed as a ball, not as her head. Yeah. I mean, that scared the shit out of me, though. Yeah. Because you do see her. I realize in most of the things where you're like, is somebody there? And they're not really there in like the actual movie. But like she is actually there. You see her face. She's actually there. Yeah. Uh, we hear a dog growling and see a dog, but they don't have a dog. Oh, no, they do have a dog. When have we seen the dog elsewhere in the movie? The very, very beginning. I don't oh, remember really? a dog I anywhere. When yeah. they, I think it's when they get home from the grandmother's funeral, we see it. I think we may only see it outside. I never, I don't ever remember seeing that dog. So to me, it was a hellhound. But why would they kill a hellhound? They don't kill it. Oh, no, it's dead. We, Wait, what do you mean it's dead? What I, are you, it's bodies at the end. Yeah, you see its body oh. at the end of the movie. Yeah, I think it came inside and was like, there's ghosts and shit in your room. And then like went back outside. <laughs> Wait, dead in the attic or dead in the treehouse? No, it's dead by the side of the driveway. What? At Where is movie. this? At, yeah. at the end at the of the end movie. Of the movie. It's like right after, I think, we see the mom's body, Tony Collette's body, like waft up to Hub, the- Hoverboard up. Oh, I think I was probably just up. distracted by- the floating yeah. yeah i've never noticed that the dog was there yeah i don't remember if i noticed it the first time but i didn't see it this time so i think it was their dog wow. and i think the dog dies sadly because we do hear a yelp with a dog like barking outside we hear it yelp or like cry out in pain anyway uh so this is where we hear the door slam and the dog yelp so this might be where she killed that dog <laughs> Yeah, I think it is. But she she comes in and she's like, I'm the only one who can fix this and stop it. We we got to help. Like, you, you got to trust me. I'm the only one who can fix it. Yeah. So she tries to go throw the sketchbook in the fire and it catches her arm on fire. So she has to put the sketchbook out. Yeah. So the next morning he goes to school. She goes to Joan's house. And we get a view of her coming down the hallway upside down as a reference to as above, so below, again, occult left-hand path yeah but it does right itself it goes from her being upside down to it being sort of the right perspective which i think is awesome because she's starting to see the reality of her situation so she tries to go into joan's house we cut into joan's house joan's not answering but there's a triangle carved into the table with peter's face and charlie's toys and this is where she remembers the doormat so she comes home and while she's at home, he's at school. And this is where Joan is calling to him from across the street. Yeah. She's literally like expelling him. She's like, I expel you or whatever. It's very. Yeah. Like, so that payment can go into his body. Yeah. But he looks around and no one else seems to hear her or react to her at all. He seems to be the only one who can. Yeah. So Annie at home opens up her mom's things, finds the note, the like kneel pads or doormats, uh, finds a book with the symbol, the invocations. She finds all the stuff about Payman, the god of mischief, and that it needs a human body. And that would give riches to the conqueror. But most often it has to be a male body. She then finds a photo album with a ton of photos of Joan and her mom yeah. and her mom depicted as the conjurer and sees a man kind of looking through her door. Now, at this point, Gabriel Byrne is like, Annie might be on the verge of or in the middle of uh, a mental health crisis. He doesn't get to send that email. Yeah. 
and, and he kind of like clicks out of it and we see the the grave site with Lee's body being removed and the empty grave. We cut back to the house. Yeah, Lee being the grandmother. Right, right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Annie goes up into the attic and this is where she finds the headless body. Not great. And the symbol in blood above the headless body covered yep. in gross flies. Like there's a lot to hate about this scene. And I did. Super gross. Yeah. Well, this is where the movie kicks into high gear because oh, yeah. like 80% of this movie is slow and creeping scary. And then the last 15 minutes of this movie are the most terrifying things put to film. <laughs> yes. So at school, he hears the tongue pops. Like all over. All over. Yeah. And then it would appear that something takes over his body because he raises his arm and looks as if he's having a stroke and yeah. can't breathe and smashes his head into the desk. It's like his arm's in a contorted position and then his head like smashes that desk. Well, okay, I'm going to burn a fun fact here. Oh, sweet. So awesome. originally he offered to just do it on a regular desk. Like hit his face on it? Yes. Oh, that's so Andrew WK. I, I'm here for it. Yeah. And Ari Aster's like, no, no, no. We'll get you like a foam desk. It'll be fine. Yeah. So they replace the top of the desk with foam, not realizing that the bottom part of the desk still hard, like still really Ooh. painful. So he smacks his head into that desk full force, thinking it's foam. Yeah. Not realizing there's still hard stuff under it dislocates his jaw oh my god in the scene they use that take oh man okay so but he like committed to it and was like yes and that's the take they use i honestly feel like papa burns is great in this movie peter is great in this movie we just don't Mm -hmm. talk about it because tony colletta is like even greater in this movie yeah she's so amazing she blows everyone out of the water and these other performances are so good yeah everybody does a great job yeah so of course uh steven aka gabriel Byrne, gets the phone call uh he has to go pick him up from school he's unconscious and he's like he did it to himself like this is bad yeah and she rushes out to the car to be like yo there's a body in the attic i don't know what to do and so they put (laughs) peter to bed he goes and looks in the attic. We hear him scream off screen. And then he comes down and is like, did you do this? Like, yeah. Here's the thing. If you <laughs> have a thought that a person you're living with, I'm not even going to say partner, mm-hmm. anyone in your life dug up a body and put it in the attic, mm-hmm. don't confront them. Go get help. Yeah, yeah. I think confronting them is possibly the worst thing you could do. Yeah. It's actually at the bottom of the list of things you should probably do. <laughs> I do love that before he goes into the attic, when she's like, you have to go. There's like a dead headless body in the attic. He's like, okay. Because I think he fully yeah. thinks she's just having a psychotic break. And he's just like, okay, I guess I'm going to go look for your mother's body in the attic or whatever. He should have came downstairs and been like, I need to go get cigarettes. <laughs> and never came back yep that's the way dad did it that's the way papa burns needs to do it he comes down the stairs and she immediately is just like here's all the evidence air quotes yeah. of like the album the stuff and he's just like i'm not doing this with you like this is not i'm not and she's just like i need you to throw this notebook in the fire because like i'm too scared to do it but like it'll kill me but then peter will be safe because she has this is the the map she has drawn in her brain. I do love that he is playing this scene like if I was at Thanksgiving dinner and my aunt brought up QAnon. Like that is, I would like right. my, my right. eyes would glass over and I would just be like, okay, uh-huh, okay. Whatever I have to say to get this conversation over with, I'll say that now. But Tony Collette is playing this like, she is trying to explain to her husband that she loves very much, that she has to kill herself 
by throwing this book in the fire right. that is connected to her. And we saw it was connected to her. So she is playing it like she's saying goodbye to the man she loves most in the world. Yes. So it's this like wild juxtaposition that plays so creepy. And man, this movie's from a technical standpoint, so good. And I hate it so much well this is where he says he says you're sick and i need to call the police so he was about to yes do the right thing with a dead body i guess yeah um but she it just spikes that notebook into the fire thinking it's going to set her on fire and instead he catches fire and instantly burns alive and as she watches she screams she like silent screams and then snaps into a trance and it is <laughs> fucking terrifying. Yeah, we talked about that scene earlier, but man, it is so nuts. She is so good. So that night, Peter wakes up and he sees the red light in the treehouse. He gets out of bed and there's someone in the corner, but again, he can't quite see them. Oh man, this scared me so bad again today. And I remember literally every beat from this till <laughs> yeah. the end of the damn movie. And I was still scared watching it. And when oh. she like swims out of the room over his shoulder. Oh, it's so creepy. Yeah, she I like skitters it. up the wall. Oh. Yeah, because th that's this scene where he like yes, hears footsteps, yeah. doesn't know where they're coming from. And he sees that there's a light below the treehouse. And then behind him, we watch her like crab crawl, crawl across the wall. Just like, Ugh. yeah. We hear flies buzzing. He walks into their bedroom. They're nowhere. He hears a bang downstairs. Yeah. He goes downstairs, shuts the door to his grandmother's room on the way, on the left. Yeah. It's open again somehow. Yeah. Downstairs, he's like, Mom. And as he walks down the hallway, you'll notice that the piano is tipped and the top is broken off of it. Because that's where she gets the wire for later. Exactly. When you first see this movie, you're like, oh, man, I guess there was like maybe a struggle or something down there. But no. Yeah. That's where she got the piano wire she's going to use here in a second. <laughs> uh, he sees his dad's charred body and over his shoulder we see Tony Collette on the ceiling. Then the cinematographer does something really amazing where he just racks the focus. It's so, so good. We go from seeing her kind of blurry in the background, him close, to him blurry in the foreground and her perfectly visible in the same shot yeah. and watch her kind of like crawl across the ceiling behind him. <laughs> It's so fucking creepy. I hate it it's so awful. much. It literally is that shot that will make me check the corners of every room I go into for the next two weeks. I guarantee Oh, yeah, it. for sure. Yeah. He sees a naked man in the closet who, by the way, was one of the men at the funeral. Yeah. This is what I've always referred to as the naked man misdirect because at this point when I saw it the first time and he turns around and Tony Collette runs at him from the corner... I stood up in the theater and yelled, fuck. That's like a story I've told many times. I didn't do that this time, but it still scared me a lot. And I knew it was coming. He he <laughs> sees the naked man and then turns to look back up into the corner, which is where we last saw her. And we were like, where is she? And then she runs out of the shadow in that corner. Oh, it's, this it's is the so part. scary. Uh, this is, see, this is the kind of jump scare that gets me. Because even though it is just something jumping out at you, a, it's earned, but B, it's not predictable. You're like, you're not like, oh, she's going to come out of the closet. You're like, I don't know where the fuck this bitch is coming from. I know. <laughs> I mean, we saw her float out of his room. We saw her crawling up the ceiling. Like, she could literally be anywhere. She could be anywhere. Yeah. Uh, she chases him back up into the attic. He ends up in the attic, closes the door, and then she is bashing her head repeatedly against the attic door to get him to open it. And it is 
fucking terrifying. And with his language, with the words he is using to beg her to stop, he like regresses Ugh. to a very childlike state. Yeah. He goes from like mom, mom, mom to like mommy. Like it's so yeah, yeah, yeah. sad. <laughs> it's just another thing that's hereditary in this film is their lack of head safety. <laughs> Honestly, this family does have wild disregard for the potentials of head trauma. Yeah. Uh, but now in the attic, there's tons of candles. The body is gone, but the outline is there and his photo has taken its place with the eyes poked out. Yeah. He hears what my subtitles described as flesh tearing and squelching. Oh, I hate this part so much. This part is definitely burned into my memory and looked exactly the same as I remembered it looking. It is so gross and graphic. Oh. He looks up into the rafters where Tony Collette is floating and actively decapitating herself with piano wire. Yeah. Oh, we don't see it to completion, but we see it after where like blood is shooting out of her neck while she does it. But he does what I think you sort of have to do in that situation, and that is jump out of your attic window. Also, he sees that there's other people, like other naked people around. Oh, yeah. He doesn't know them. So he jumps out the fucking window. We see her shadow, the shadow of her body float over his unconscious body. Well, first we hear him land and we hear just like the crickets. We and hear shit. the piano wire stop. Yeah. And we hear the head thud. Oh, the thud. And then the head rolls slightly. Oh, it's. Yeah. The Foley in that moment alone should have won an award. Like the Oscar yeah. for best head thump onto floor after decapitation. They should have won that one for sure. Yep. So he kind of <laughs> regains consciousness just in time to watch her headless body float up into the treehouse. Yeah. And then he makes the tongue pop noise. Right. Now, when he's laying down before he like the, the light orb kind of orbs him. Yeah. The light orb goes over him and then dissipates sort of into him. And right. If you're reading that supernaturally, I think that that is payment entering his body because when right, he right, jumped right. out the window that killed Peter, quote unquote. Yeah. And then mm -hmm. payment was able to go into the body. That was my reading mm -hmm. of it. But if you're reading it from the unreliable narrator, sort of schizophrenic episode kind of thing, it's different. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he follows that body up into the treehouse. As he does, he passes naked dudes in the woods. Yeah. Uh, once he gets up there, he sees Charlie's head on a mannequin with a crown, yeah. a bunch of birds in cages, and then his mother and grandmother's headless bodies bowing to the mannequin. And a picture of his grandmother shown as Queen Lee. Yeah. So Joan takes the crown from Charlie's head and places it on Peter's and off screen. We hear her basically say, like, you're payment now. You're one of the eight kings of hell. We called you in. We corrected your female body. Yeah. Uh, we pray to you. All these things. Hail payment. And we watch as his face is really not definitive and yeah. i do kind of like that because you don't I was able know to pay attention a lot more to his face this time it is vague. i watched it very carefully because yeah. it is vague and and it's like is it him is it not no one knows uh but we pull back and end on a miniature and, and that's the movie. movie so having seen the movie having talked about the movie what did you guys think about Hereditary? So good. Yeah. It's, it's such a, just a well-made film. Like, holy crap. Like, like I said, it's going to go down as a class. It's going to be like a new classic. It's, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. It already is, but I think it'll stand the test of time. Absolutely. I mean, I don't 
watch it a lot because I just, you know. It's a heavy movie. Yeah. It's really heavy. I hope to never watch it again. Yeah. I mean, I said that the first time I watched it. And if we weren't doing this podcast, I certainly would have watched it again. Right. But like if you're showing people horror movies who've never watched horror movies, this is going to be on the list. Yeah, absolutely. Of like like a pretty short list. I'll definitely watch this again. If there was ever a chance to see it in theaters again, I would absolutely go. Mm -mm. It was scary as all get out in theaters. I believe it. I do want to say this because I get shit about this all the time online. I watched this on my big TV. I have blackout curtains. I blacked out. I turned off the lights. Like I did this the way I was supposed to do this and I hated it. I believe it. But, Paige, you mentioned you had a lot of fun facts. So do you have any more fun facts for us? I do. Well, here it is with your fun facts. Headless Headless fun fun facts. Hang on. So I pulled some information from some uh, interviews that Ari Aster did about this movie. So he has said that with this film, he wanted to make a film about suffering that took suffering seriously. A mission accomplished, Ari Aster? Mission accomplished, yeah. Yeah. Uh, He also wanted all of the scares to be emotionally justified and not traditional jump scares, which considering that you do not get a jump scare in this movie until like 90 minutes in, I would say yes. And I definitely would classify every jump scare in this movie as very earned. Yeah, very Mm -hmm. earned. Yeah. Uh, Tony Collette has actually commented that she believes Ari Aster is the most prepared director she's ever worked with and said that he seemed to have the full movie shot and edited in his head two years before they started filming. According to Alex Wolf, who played Peter, the original cut of the film could have been over three hours and the additional hour is mostly more family dialogue around grief. Uh, but they trimmed it for pacing. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. But man, I would love to just like from a critic perspective, I'd love to see that. Oh, I you could just go watch Midsummer. <laughs> yeah, basically. So Ari Aster also wrote detailed biographies and backstories for all of the characters before writing the screenplay. None of it shows up on screen. However, if you're a writer, do this. Yeah, because it informs the choices your characters make and will make them more well-rounded and seem more grounded in reality. Everyone should do that if you're writing. That fun fact and the one about Tony Collette saying he was the most prepared director she's ever worked with. I think you feel that while watching this movie because you're like, damn, mm-hmm. everything Absolutely. is intentional. Like even on a second rewatch, yes. you're like, holy shit, I didn't notice thirty things the first time I saw this that yeah. I now notice. Right? I'm sure. If I watched it again, I'd see 30 more things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, He also, prior to principal photography, he already had a 75-page long shot list. Good for him, man. Before locations were even scouted. Kevin Smith once said the best advice he ever got from a director before he directing a movie was, on the day of your first shoot, Make sure you've planned your second shot. And this yeah. guy goes in with a 75 page 75 shot list. Page. <laughs> <laughs> to give you to give you an idea, to if you're unfamiliar with how films are made and how this works, the script for this movie is very likely in the neighborhood of 130 pages long, which is long for a debut feature, but given how much is in this movie makes sense in fact it was probably longer because they did cut stuff out of it now 75 pages of shots that's just a list of the shots that you need which means that that equates to like three times as much shot as is on the page give or take so that's a wild amount of preparation and a wild amount to shoot in do you know how long this movie took to be shot I don't. Mm, four weeks. 
It was exactly four weeks. It was 32 what? days. 32 days. Yes. That's amazingly fast for a movie like this. That's almost awesome. unheard of. Yes. Yeah. Good for them. Shit. But because he knew exactly what he was doing every step exactly of the way. Exactly what he wanted. Yeah. Now, also, almost every single effect that could be done practically on this film is done practically. There's almost no CGI in this film. Awesome. The very few pieces are uh, like some of her crawling on the walls and stuff that, you know, they couldn't necessarily do. I'd imagine the like um, light effect is also CGI, but everything else is practical. Yeah. Yep. Ari Aster claims that he has 10 screenplays written that he hopes to direct over the course of his career. If you're keeping count, he is currently still in pre-production on the third. <laughs> I think it's going to take a while. Do you know anything about the third? So the only thing I know about the third is what he has said in interviews that he he actually wanted it to be a romance, not a horror. But as we'll get into in just a second, a lot of his movies turn into horror unintentionally. This movie was supposed to be a family drama with no supernatural element. What? Yeah, and no horror element. Well, I would love for him to do a romance movie because we could do it still. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He wrote the script as a family drama. And in fact, most of the people who were in it were like, when I read it, it was mostly a family drama that at the end you're like, oh, it's a horror movie. And so he did widespread rewrites now, if this had remained a family drama, Midsummer would have been his first horror film like he originally intended it to be. So Midsummer, which I think is much more of a family drama as well, uh, was supposed to be his first horror and potentially only horror movie. He doesn't necessarily want to make more. It's wild. Yeah. Well, he seems like a... He kind of wants to do a little bit of everything. Yeah. yeah. I don't think Midsummer is technically... I mean, it's not as much of a horror film. It's it's a horror film. I don't think anyone would dispute that it's a horror film, but it definitely yeah. is a different type of horror than this is. Yes. But they both are horror, and if he is like trying to do different genres, he might want to stop bending every other genre back to horror. Back to horror. So Tony Collette had told her agent that she didn't want to do any more heavy, dark films and only wanted to do comedies, but then she got the script and liked it so much, she agreed to do it regardless. Yeah. In order to try and foster the brother-sister relationship between Alex Wolf and Millie Shapiro, he would have them go out to dinner in character a few times where she would not talk mm. and he would spend the entire dinner trying to get her to talk. That's a good idea. That's cool. Okay. Mm -hmm. But also, part of the reason they cast everybody... Gabriel Byrne and Alex Wolf had worked together previously okay. on, I believe it's In Treatment? No, it might be something else, but it was like 2008. Okay. But then Alex and Millie both went to school together, so they knew each other. The only person that didn't know anybody was Toni Collette. Oh. And they thought that was kind of perfect because it mir mirrored her feelings of alienation and isolation within the family. Yeah, because of her feelings that everyone thinks she's a burden. Exactly. The way that Ari Aster pitched the film when first trying to sell it, which, by the way, if you see A24 movies now, it's basically just an A24 movie. If you watch this movie, because <laughs> this is very early, it's like an A24 movie of a whatever production of a thing production of a so-and-so film because he had to, like, sell this movie. Yeah. And he sold it as it's a story about a long-lived possession ritual told from the perspective of the sacrificial lamb a.k.a. Tragic Hero. So he believes that the Graham family within this movie has no say and lacks awareness concerning the events taking place around him. It is effectively a Greek 
tragedy as a movie, which means supernatural, essentially. Yeah. But he also thinks that the miniature figures and dollhouses serve as a metaphor for their inescapable fate. Just as the the gods play with people as dolls and dollhouses, so she has created dollhouses to basically play out what will happen to them and is inescapable. Okay. I definitely, yeah. definitely could see that reading of it too. I liked my control yep. view of it. I was like, oh, this is definitely what it is, but I could definitely see his interpretation. Yeah, that makes sense. So Colin Stetson is the man who did the score and they started working on this about two years before photography was finished. And the only direction he got was make it feel evil, which <laughs> is kind of hilarious given how much preparation and everything. But also, bro, you nailed it. It does feel nailed evil. it. Yeah. A lot of the ominous tones are his own vocals altered. Okay. The company that built the miniature houses were actually built by uh, a guy who was supposed to do the makeup uh, for some of the like gore and was like, hey, who's going to do the miniatures so that we can kind of collaborate? And they're like, oh, we haven't hired somebody yet. And they were like, can we do it? So the same people who did a lot of the set design and makeup on people also did all the miniatures. Oh, interesting. Okay, cool. Uh, the production designer, Grace Yoon, did research on pagan and left-hand path rituals to design the sets. So most of the sets play with the idea of sacred geometry. So the square when all four of them are alive is basically representing home and groundedness after Charlie's death. You see a lot more triangles yeah. uh, because it's basically them as forces kind of working against each other. Uh, but then there's also circles, infinite Genesis, etc., And they're all different shapes embedded within the design of the sets. If you look on the second floor hallway of the house, there are squares with triangles carved into it. Okay. I want to now watch the movie again. It's apparently everywhere. Yeah. In Peter's first scene at school, when they're talking about Heracles and escaping fate, the words escaping fate are written on the chalkboard. This is actually a reference to the original Halloween, where the main character discusses the same thing in class. Yeah. Uh, and appropriately, this movie was released the same day that the trailer for Halloween 2018 came out. All right. So I bet it actually played before this movie, like in the theater. Probably. Yeah. Probably. Um, Alex Wolf insisted on being referred to as Peter during the entirety of production. It was not until he completed filming of his last scene that he like basically introduced himself to people as Alex. So he was in character the whole time. Okay. All right. Yep. That's a choice. <laughs> he could also just try like acting or whatever, but cool. I mean, I would argue that he did pretty damn good at that. So oh. do whatever you want to do, fool. He crushed it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Director of photography. Uh, Pavel Pogoreski uh, was Ari Aster's classmate at AFI. Uh, so he would then, as we mentioned earlier, go on to shoot Midsummer, but also the movie Nobody. I don't know if you guys saw Nobody. I have not. So they have collaborated on most of Ari Aster's films. I would assume he's going to shoot the next one as well. So the first decapitation scene, the, the one where Charlie loses her head, is a very similar to a real life event that happened in Marietta, Georgia in 2004. Oh, a young shoot. man and his friend drove home drunk after a party. 
Oh, God. Now, he was in the passenger seat. He wasn't being rude like Charlie was. Right, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. exactly. But he thought he was going to be (laughs) sick and stuck his head out the window just in case he needed to throw up and had been riding that way for some time. The driver accidentally swerved near a pole, decapitating the passenger. But the drunk driver was so drunk, he did not realize his friend had been decapitated and drove all the way home. He parked in his parents' driveway with his decapitated friend in the car and went inside to sleep for the night. Oh, my God. It's like exactly this, but in the front seat, which is weirder. (laughs) Well, I think the body still ended up leaning out the window. This movie's advertising campaign has actually been compared to the one for Psycho. Uh, Millie Shapiro, who plays Charlie, features prominently in the trailer. I don't know if you remember this trailer, but it was fucking terrifying. Um, and people have compla- compared it to Psycho because Janet Lee is made to look like the lead of the film and then dies 15 minutes or so in. Same thing happens in this movie. Charlie dies pretty early in. Yeah. And it's possible that they named the grandmother Lee after Janet Lee, although this has never been confirmed. Okay. So uh, the symbol that's shown throughout the film, particularly on the necklaces that they wear and the book and scrawled on the post is a slightly different version of the real seal of the demon payment as shown in old texts of the Lesser Key of Solomon. The most notable difference is that the real symbol has four figures instead of the three that the film uses. Again, that could be a reference to sacred geometry, but mostly they changed it because it was considered bad luck to use real symbolism in films. Yeah. And films who have done... Real symbols, the exorcist, the omen, Rosemary's baby, have allegedly been cursed. Yeah. Just because it doesn't exist doesn't mean you shouldn't not fuck with it. Like, don't don't mess with it. It doesn't matter if it exists or not. Why would you mess with it? Right. And finally, and perhaps the most fun, Charlie is seen eating a dove candy bar when she cuts off the bird's head. Oh, my God. I love everything about that. And those are your fun facts. Well, Paige, thank you for those fun facts. Let's talk a little bit about box office. Now, what do you think the production budget was for Hereditary in 2018 when it came out? I'm going to say this is like $5 million. Okay. I'm going to say 10 Okay. Mikey, you are exactly right. It is $10 million. That's still amazing. It is really good. Yeah. If you adjust that for inflation, that's almost $12 million. It's $11.8 million. Dollars today. Now, this movie premiered on June 8th, 2018. I was there watching it that night. It was actually the night I met Natalie. It was fourth in the theaters that weekend. It was beat by Ocean's 8. That was number one that weekend. Number two was Solo, a Star Wars story. Number three was Deadpool 2. And number four, of course, is Hereditary. And number five was Avengers Infinity War. Do you want to guess? how much Hereditary made in its opening weekend. I remember that this was a slow burn and that this did not do well initially and then word of mouth got out and then it did better. At least that was what it seemed to be around the time. I'm going to say it made $8 million its opening weekend. Okay. Mikey, do you want to wager a guess? 12. Mikey, you're a lot closer. It was $13.5 ah. million. Dollars. Okay. So it was in the theaters for a total of 12 weeks. So what do you think it made in the domestic box office? 72. Okay. Mm, I'm going to go a little lower lower and say like 50. Okay. Paige, you're a lot closer. It was $44 million. 
I almost said 45. Damn it. (laughs) It went on to make another $37.1 million internationally for a total of what Mikey uh, was closer to with his guess of $81.2 million in 2018, which if you adjust for inflation is $96.3 million in today's dollars. But again, in 2018, it brought in $81.2 million at the box office. And that is your box office. So, Mikey, do you want to hit him with that scary scale? Yeah, scary scale lizards is how scary we found the film. We watched it today. Uh, Our one example is Ghostbusters, and our ten example is Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Paige. I would say that the first time I saw this movie, I would have probably put it at a seven or eight. I think today it was a five. Todd. I probably gave this a nine in the original episode if you go back and listen to that one, but it is my ten. This is the scariest movie I've ever seen. I would say the second time around... It was a six. It was still really scary for me, Mm -hmm. even though I knew where all the jump scares were. But it wasn't as scary as it was the night I saw it in the theaters. That would be ridiculous to think that. I respect that, though. I respect that, too. It's been so long since I've seen it that I didn't remember a lot of the jump scares. Okay. Or the whole part in the, with the cup moving. Totally forgot that whole thing happened. So I was like, oh, this is like a new movie. So I'm going to give it a five. <laughs> okay. And that's our scary scale. All right. Well, this week, you all made me watch Hereditary again. What are you going to make me watch again next week? Next week, we will be revisiting Aliens, one of Mikey and... And my favorite films. Nice. This is one of those movies that wasn't super scary. I mean, we get Bill Paxton yelling, game over, man, game over. So how scary can it be? Game over, man. But I'm looking forward to revisiting this one because I remember it being a little bit of action-y as well. And I'm here for that kind of stuff. It's it's pretty action-y. I would say the original Alien is scarier. It's more of a traditional, almost like a haunted house in space. Yeah, sure. Can't argue with that. It's amazing. Uh, love it. I-, I love most of the Alien franchise, so whatevs. But <laughs> what I will say is the interesting thing that Aliens does is that the first Alien was just kind of merchants. They they weren't necessarily the strongest, the baddest. Aliens is like, we've got the strongest and the baddest, and they still get their shit rocked by this alien. Yeah. And it also has uh, Michael, 80s Michael Bean. 80s everyone. There's, I 80s love, everybody. I love this film, top to bottom. And the lady who makes my bras. <laughs> <laughs> so your homework for next week is to watch a movie featuring the woman who currently makes Paige's bras. And Paige and uh, check back for our episode on Aliens Dollar Sign. Dollar Signs, yeah. So Mikey, do you have a review for us to read? Yes. Awesome. Well, whose review are you going to read this week? Anime, no, a mind turtle. <laughs> Are you sure it's not anime turtle? Because I feel like that makes sense. A M I N E. I'm wrong. A mind turtle. Well, what does a mind turtle have to say? My new work buddies. Oh, Aww. okay. This podcast has been an absolute joy to me. I recently started my first desk job and discovered this podcast when looking for something to listen to while I work. Nice. Well, these three have been a great gift to me this year, and they go they go on to giving us individualized messages. Oh, really? Aww, thank Who do you. they go with first? It must be the person they love the most that they include first. It must be. First is the worst, and that is a <laughs> thing that has been true uh, since <laughs> elementary school. You hear, you hear people saying this? Everyone's saying that first is the worst. Everyone's saying that, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the first goes to Todd, and it says, uh, thank you for putting yourself through the stress and excitement of horror movies. Your voice makes me swoon, and your box office facts add to my ever-growing movie knowledge. I think that's the first time someone's mentioned my voice in a way that was not 
involved with giving them cancer. So I'll take it. Well, they were raised they were raised by an auctioneer, so it was like a small step up. <laughs> <laughs> a coked up auctioneer, Mikey. <laughs> Paige, I can't count the amount of times I've had to hold back laughter from your jokes at work. You're hilarious and your fun facts are the icing on the tasty horror cake. Mmm, cake. Mikey, your perspective <laughs> That's what she heard there. <laughs> Mikey, your perspective from your job has been the most interesting part of this podcast to me. Well, that's I rarely talk about that. <laughs> and then they thank me for my service. Yes. Which I, you know, I don't think I'm in that space, but I'll take it, I guess. You mean like the first responders space? <laughs> I I've never been in a parade. Right. But you definitely are someone they call to like emergency emergency stuff. mental yeah. health where like people's lives are on the line type situations but i want to be in the christmas parade is all i'm <laughs> saying mm-hmm. i am calling the mayor tonight i'm gonna make it happen you're a major goofball and a and the wild card i always enjoy to hear i'm not sure about these compliments but anyway thank you all <laughs> for making this year a little sweeter five stars well thank you Yay. so much for that awesome five-star review and for finding the podcast. We appreciate you listening. So, guys, if you like this show but want to hear this power thruple on another movie review show about romance and romantic comedies, check out Romancing the Pod, where Mikey, Paige, and I break down and make fun of romantic movies. It's a lot of fun, guys. Check it out. If you want to follow us on social, please do. We are at Horror Virgin or online at HorrorVirgin.com. If you want to follow us all individually, you can do that as well. Paige is at Paige Wesley on Twitter or Rampage Wesley everywhere else, including TikTok. TikTok. Mikey is at M Randolph 24 and I am at Todd J awesome. If you like the show so much and you want to help financially support it, please do by going to patreon.com slash horror virgin where you can get a lot of great levels and a lot of great stuff like bonus episodes, director's cut episodes where they're a little bit longer and you get them actually a day earlier mm-hmm. than the mm-hmm. regular feed drop. We do a lot of great things like listener requests and stuff like that. So guys check out yeah. the Patreon and help support the show. If you want to financially support me, but not Todd, just look me up on Venmo. If you can't financially support the show, that's understandable, that's fine, but if you want to hang out with us on the daily, join the Facebook group uh, at facebook.com slash group slash virgin. We also link it like once a week, so just find it there and join the awesome Facebook group. Literally, we're in there talking every day. It's awesome. And guys, we got a P.O. box, so if you want to send us some love letters or whatever you might send to a P.O. box, it's actually not a P.O. box. It's like a regular street address. It's pretty awesome. It's 6688 Nolensville Road, number 108-34, Brentwood, Tennessee, 37027. So send us some stuff. Yeah. And if you want to check out our Twitch stream, we're at twitch.tv slash Todd Awesome, where we will be playing horror video games. So if you have always wondered what it would be like to watch me get scared, you can now do that on Twitch while I play these horror games. It's twitch.tv slash Todd Awesome, guys. Check it out. It's a lot of fun for you. Not a lot of fun for me. And if you haven't noticed, since October 1st, we have been running the new Horror Virgin blog. And when I say we, I really mean Katie from the Facebook group. She's been running everything. She's like the managing editor of the Horror Virgin blog. So 
If you haven't been to our Horror Virgin blog, go check it out. It's at horrorvirgin.com slash blog. You'll see it. It's awesome. There's a lot of great articles. I mean, at the end of October, we have 31 awesome articles up, and they will continue after October, not on a daily schedule, though. That's just too much for Katie to handle. But check out our awesome Horror Virgin blog up now. This episode was brought to you by Tia, and Tia's teenager's been driving her crazy. So how has Tia's teenager been driving her crazy this week? She always sits in the backseat. She always sits in the backseat, <laughs> but then also she keeps floating up into the treehouse, and it's dangerous. It is dangerous. What if you bonk your head because you float wrong? I know. Bonk. <laughs> this episode also brought to you by Jonathan, and Jonathan normally sends me some spooky spider videos for me to show both of you, and we'll see if he did this week. Let me check my DMs. So this video is called Great Thulu. Great Cthulhu? I'm not sure what this is. Oh, this is the Church of Cthulhu. <laughs> it's a Christmas song. About the Eldritch Horrors. Yeah, that's amazing. But to the tune of Runoff the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Right. Wow, okay. I do love the thought people go into for their weird beliefs. Yeah. And I'm here for it. That guy's head looks like a Venus flytrap. Yeah. These all look like like an AI painting of a vulva. <laughs> well, Jonathan, thank you so much for that not a spider spooky video. We appreciate the love and support. We now return you to another episode of uh, the, the Patreonicals. I don't remember shit about whatever I was doing before because we took a couple weeks for the holidays. So, Todd, where are we jumping to? Um, okay, let's jump from wherever we left to Athens, 776 BC, which is when the first Olympics took place. Okay, so everybody gets to Athens in some time in the past where it's the first Olympic. 776 BC, Mikey. And the Anthony the Time Master uh, and his girlfriend, oh, Jennifer the PH. Sophia the Time Cop comes and she's like, What are we going to, you guys are all under arrest. And they're like, and like Anthony's like, Let's make them fight or whatever. So now <laughs> we're going to do a Mortal Kombat style tournament. I love like a everything Kumite? about this. Yes. Kumate. Kumate. Okay. And this is just going to be random. First matchup, Isaac versus Dave. Isaac immediately kills him and eats him. Is anyone going to fight a kangaroo? <laughs> no one's fighting a kangaroo. We don't have a kangaroo patriarchal person currently. It's Kate versus Karun. Do you guys have a guess? I would go with Kate because she has telekinesis. Right. That is correct. She immediately <laughs> destroys Karun and rips him up. She doesn't kill him, but she like hangs him up and he says uncle or whatever. Right. <laughs> I love how the first battle was brutal. Someone died. And this one, he just says uncle after being lifted. And they're like, okay, he forfeited. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this next one is uh, Scott, who's the thing, made of the thing, and Danielle who got turned into an attractive person. I forgot what I did with the moon people last time. Whatever. You're, you're turned back into moon aliens, but they have no more children. Yeah, they did turn fully human, so now they're back to being okay. fully moon people. They're half moon people humans now, because it didn't take. Um, <laughs> Scott punches her very hard because he's made of stone, and she also was like, I'm kind of done with this. Uh, <laughs> and then we got another half moon person, Aaron. Okay. Versus West, who's just very handsome. Does anybody have any guesses? I mean, I'm going to guess that handsome West loses, but only because he can't take, like he catches the reflection of himself in a shiny surface and mm -hmm. he can't stop mm -hmm. looking at himself. 
That's exactly what happened. Yeah, figured. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then she, he, you know, he lost. Right. Are you going to do like a bracket? I'm doing a bracket. It's on my phone right now. Hell yeah. I love this. Uh, Shining Donut versus Dreskel, who's the king of the Illuminati. I didn't realize the Illuminati was a monarchy. This is news to me. Honestly, I'm very glad I'm learning what the inner circle mm-hmm. of the Illuminati is like. I thought the king was going to be Jay-Z or Beyonce. Anyway, <laughs> Shining Donut turns into a giant donut and falls over him, and so he gives up. I mean, when you get crushed by delicious donut, you throw in the towel and just munch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we got Nathan, the professional wrestler, versus Allie, the mermaid. Well, I guess... I'm so sorry, Allie, but you're probably going to lose this one. That is uh, I'm going to say Allie wins because professional wrestling is fake. What? <laughs> Come for me. <laughs> no, it's not fake. I He's did b- see The Undertaker body slam stone cold grandmother's casket or whatever the fuck Mikey said two weeks ago. They did a cage match. He yeah. poured water on her. She turned into mermaid legs and then he dropped her from the top of the cage. From the top of the top rope. Mm-hmm. And she lost. But she's not dead. She just like knocked out or whatever. Until next season at WrestleMania. Then she's gonna take a chair <laughs> and like knock Vince McMahon unconscious. Come to the thunder under the sea where we fight for Poseidon's belt. Sorry. It's the underdome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You people at home, you could try to guess who wins the whole thing before next week or whatever. Who gets thrown through the Spanish language table? <laughs> Dios mio. They always do. It's always the <laughs> Spanish correspondence table that people get thrown through. It's Bo Easy versus Jeremy with the laser eyes. And Bo Easy, he's a Florida man. So it's kind of. So what you're saying is he deflects the laser eyes with his own Oakley mirrored lenses on his <laughs> eyes and it kills yeah. the laser eye guy. It, he, was, he didn't just have Oakley's on. He also had one of those reflector things. That they do in the movies to tan their face. <laughs> and Jeremy cut one of his toes off. <gasps> Rude. Now he's a nine-toed guy. Lost a toe. <laughs> I love how we hear Mikey leaving a note about his absence of a toe. We got Libby, who is also a half-mon, half-human. And Cody, who runs a pawn shop wherever he ends up. He does seem to be pawn pigeonholed. Yeah. Hey, 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 hey. What if he pawned that toe? <laughs> Hey, my man, I got you a live toe if you want one. Wait, a live toe? I don't you think you can buy a, a toe, toe back from me if you want. <laughs> well, Libby. Costs you $600. <laughs> she got the long, mun like fingers still. Okay. And she just beat the shit out of him with those long fingers and poked him and all sorts of shit. And he just, it, it was just freaky. He didn't like it. So he's gone. He, he cried, Uncle. Now you got Alex, the magician, versus Lauren, the cave person. I definitely think a magician would lose to a cave woman. Wait, does she have a club? She definitely always has a club. Then yeah, she's the winner. Can he reach behind her ear and pull out a katana sword? <laughs> yes, but she beat him even harder because she doesn't understand that it's sleight of hand. Yeah, she doesn't okay. trust magic. She's out. Oh, we got Mr. Rage Bomb versus Amy the Astronaut. I mean, the bomb's going to explode. I mean, I know what's <laughs> happening here, right? Definitely the bomb's going to explode. All he does is look at her and he's like, Amy, don't make me explode. And she's like, I give up. <laughs> She's like uncle or whatever mm-hmm. I really feel like the people from the first round Are just standing around listening to everyone cry uncle Very early on in the fight Like <laughs> I, had, I had to kill that man Why did no one tell me the rules Were not to the death uh, Mate <laughs> Ooh, The next round That's when Jennifer with a PH is like The next round it is to the death <gasps> And also you have to kiss 
Ooh, <laughs> after they're dead. <laughs> I guess we're going to find out who's kissing who on another episode of I got Too two more Hot people. to Handle. Oh, shit. My bad. Oh. <laughs> I, w- I was just making a joke, but yeah, let's. <laughs> Vance, the ser- Vance, who is H.H. Holmes right. versus Garotica, the heavy metal bitch who dresses like she just like it's just like the movie had a heavy metal, you know, that that chick. I'm going to go with Garotica because in my mind, she's beautiful and bad. Yeah. And then Vance is like, he's like a, he's like a little prissy 16, 1700s guy. You could just say it's Todd, but in like Renaissance dress. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, mm, I'm a serial killer. Mm. And then like, she just beats the <laughs> shit out of him. And then Captain Bruder is like, it's, it's me. I'm the captain. I've got a parrot and like a gun or whatever. It's a me, Captain Herzog. <laughs> it's a me, Captain Herzog. And but they're like, we got you. A, a we pulled somebody through time to fight you. This is Wolfric, who is a werewolf. I mean, that checks out with a name like Wolfric. You only have one option. Uh huh. Yeah. Now, is he always a werewolf, or is it just during full moons? And is he going to be permanently triggered by moon people? Ooh. Oh my God! <gasps> There's so many possibilities. Mikey, the layers. Well, Bruder shoots him, and his parrot attacks and <laughs> eats the parrot. <laughs> Okay. He's just a person, too, so it's weirder. (laughs) He can't get killed in person for him either because he's still a werewolf. Sure, sure, sure. Will will like like slaps the shit out of him and he Bruder starts crying because his his parrot uh got killed so he will work one. That's the first round of the tournament of stuff. Well, I guess we'll have to find out next week who wins in the second round on another episode of uh, the the Patreonicals. That's gonna be it for us, you guys. I'm Paige. I'm Mikey. And I'm your horror virgin, Todd. Keep it ooky spooky. Yeah. Have a great week. Bye. Rewatching horror movies I hated the first time, nerds.